Good morning, everyone. I'm Amy Seawright, Senior Advisor and Director of the Southeast Asia Program here at CSIS. And it's my honor to welcome you to the annual CSIS Asian Architecture Conference, which is organized by the Southeast Asia Program and the Shoal Chair for International Business in partnership with the Simon Chair in Political Economy and the National Center for APEC. We look forward to this conference each year uh, to take some time to explore the key issues on tap for leaders when they meet in the upcoming regional summits, uh, the East Asia Summit, which will be held in Bangkok, Thailand this year, and APEC, which will be held subsequently in Chile. We still don't know which key leader of the United States is going to attend the East Asia Summit, um, but we do expect President Trump to attend APEC in Chile. There's never been a lack of issues to be addressed at these summits, and this year is no exception. U.S.-China's strategic competition and its wide-ranging implications will clearly be a concern for many, but so will many other issues, including North Korea's nuclear program and the health of our regional and global trading system. I'm thrilled that we have Representative Ami Berra here this morning to kick off the conference. I'm going to leave it to uh, Monica Hardy-Whaley, who is the president of the National Center for APEC, to introduce Representative Berra. So I'll just say that Representative Berra has emerged as an extremely important voice on Asia in Congress, and he just told me he's back from a, uh, leading a delegation to Southeast Asia, some really interesting countries in Southeast Asia. I'm sure he'll share some of his insights from that visit. Following his remarks, we'll have two uh, really terrific panels. The first one will be on APEC, and the second one will be on the East Asia Summit and the strategic priorities of some key participating countries. Uh, we'll then have a lunch break uh, before we roll into a discussion with uh, Takahiko Nakao, who is the president of the Asian Development Bank. So I encourage you all to stick around with us uh, through the lunch to hear from President Nakao. Um, so with that, let me, oh, let me thank support from the National Center for APEC, as well as Japan External Trade Organization uh, and the Asian Development Bank uh, for their financial support for this conference. So with that, let me ask Monica Whaley uh, to come to the stage to introduce Representative Barra. Thank you, Amy, and I want to thank the, um, the great team here at CSIS, which always does such a wonderful job pulling this event together and appreciate all their, all their help. Um, it's my pleasure today to, uh, to be here to introduce Dr. Ami Berra, member of Congress from California's 7th District. Um, and his, his resume speaks uh, very clearly to his desire to be bipartisan and to work across the aisle and to work on issues that are affecting uh, all Americans in their, in their homes and daily lives. Uh, in the context of this forum today and our focus on the Asia Pacific, it is notable to, that he is a first generation American uh, and the longest serving Indian American member of Congress. Um, and we have, uh, He's a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House, and that's obviously been a very busy committee. I know that he has to actually uh, leave today after the, his remarks to, to get back to that important work. Um, but also as a member of the New Democrats Coalition, which I know has also been active on issues of economic affairs, and I think that's um, going to be a great background. And he can share with us some of the thoughts that he has from his recent trip to Asia, and I'll let him share uh, what he's done there. But please join me in welcoming uh, Congressman Ami Berra. Thank you. 
Well, thank you for that um, generous introduction. Um, you know, people always ask me, do I want to be introduced as congressman or doctor? And you know, people still like doctors right now. So, so I, I appreciate that you introduced me as Dr. Barra. Um, you know, it's, you know, maybe we live in interesting times, and we certainly do live in interesting times. And, you know, when you think about, you know, this is now, um, I'm coming up on entering my eighth year in, in Congress. And, you know, we've seen a lot. Had you asked me, several years ago where we would be with regards to our relationship with Asia um, and the Pacific, I would have said we would have passed TPP and we'd be focused on how the implementation of TPP was going and, and setting kind of a rules-based order that we would be making overtures to China and they'd be thinking about how they could then enter TPP. We would have been in the midst of um, passing TTIP and again, we would have created an economic framework. Now, that, that was um, a asking a several years ago. Um, obviously, we don't find ourselves in, in that place today. And part of the reason why the, um, we led a delegation in a bipartisan way to visit Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines was to look at not just maritime security in the South China Sea, um, obviously a major issue, but also, you know, it does frustrate me um, when I hear folks in that region say, well, the United States is not paying attention, they're no longer engaged, et cetera, and I think from the perspective of Congress, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, we very much recognize that um, Asia and the Pacific, um, and, and certainly the, the region that APEC covers, likely is going to be the most vibrant economic region in the 21st century. We have to be there, because if we're not there, we abdicate um, our responsibilities, and we know competitor nations that operate under a slightly different economic model than ours will fill that void. Um, you know, what I thought I would do is share a little bit about my perspective, you know, just having come back from the region and then just open it up for, for questions. Um, the two major goals of this delegation were, again, to continue to send a signal to the, the region that the U.S. recognizes the vibrancy and the importance of, of the region. Um, the second also was, you know, we strategically picked Malaysia um, as a, a country, we're the, we're the first congressional delegation to visit Malaysia since the new government came, came into effect. And I think it's incredibly important um, both for Congress um, as well as the administration to send signals that we want this government to be successful. You know, we have folks doing democracy building there, and it's, it's going to be difficult. They're digging themselves out of a, a major hole here in the, the 1MB um, scandal, and you know they face a lot of significant headwinds, and I think it's important that we're engaged and, and we're supportive and we're doing what we can to, to help Malaysia be successful. So a couple takeaways. Um, there are real concerns in the region of um, economic slowdown and economic headwinds. Um, there's concern that the the administration's approach to China um, when it comes to trade policy is leading that slowdown, and they're very worried about that. 
So that would be um, number one. And, and, and there's some blame being pointed to the United States, right, rightly or, or, or wrongly. Um, number two, you know, China's very present all, all across the region. And for all of us with regards to how we think about our engagement with um, the, the countries of APAC, it's not the United States or China, it's both. And I think all the countries recognize that, that we have to take this du dual approach. Um, and you know, they don't want to be in a position where they have to pick or choose um, the United States or China. They understand that, you know, especially those, the three countries that we visited, but all the countries in that region have a, a strong Chinese influence. And, um, and while they're, Again, these are my impressions. While they're weary of how China often will operate, some of the economic coercion that they use, et cetera, they understand that um, China is, is going to, to be a major player in the region for the foreseeable future. Um, and they don't, you know, that if they were forced into a corner to pick the U.S. versus China, they'd have a very difficult time turning their back on China because of the proximity geographically. Um, they also recognize for their own maritime security, for their own commerce, they need the United States present in the region. They may not verbally say it in their, their politics and, and, and rhetoric at times may come out as anti-U.S. Um, because of their concerns with regards to how China might react. But in conversations, they very much recognize they want the U.S. presence in the region, along with our allies. I'm an optimist by nature. Um, I, I do appreciate the TPP-11 countries keeping um, the framework of the original um, deal somewhat intact. I appreciate that um, the door is still open for the United States, and we consistently hear that. And it was mentioned in the introduction that you know, I caucus with the New Democrat Coalition, which on the Democratic side formed the bulk of the, the members that were supportive of, of TPP and, and continue to be supportive of, of TPP. Um, I don't, none of us knows what the future looks like. None of us knows whether within this administration or within a new administration, um, the door for TPP opens up. I, I would argue pulling out of TPP was one of our biggest strategic blunders. It certainly diminished our, our ability um, to influence that region and you know, set the economic rules of the road for the region. And it is in our interest whether it's um, the current TPP or we call it something different, you know, um, that we probably re-engage at some juncture. Um, so I, I will stop with that. I do have to head up to the hill, but I'm happy to take a, a, a couple questions. Um, so, and obviously a lot happening on the hill today from the foreign affairs perspective, please. Congressman, thank you for your, for your talk. Um, as, as one doctor to another, did you happen to I'm Tom Reckford with the Foreign Policy Discussion Group. Did you happen to talk with Dr. Mahathir, uh, who uh, evidently is opposed to Malaysia joining the new TPP? And I, I wonder how you view his 
notions about international trade at this point? You know, we, we didn't get a chance to, to talk to Dr. Mahathir because um, it was right on the heels of Unga. So, you know, a lot, um, he, he wasn't in Malaysia at the time, but we did get a chance to talk to some of their parliamentarians and, and so forth. I, I think, um, so we, we didn't get his perspective on trade. I think from the parliamentarian side, they recognize the, the value of TPP, and I think the, the parliamentarians, you know, certainly um, my impression would be that they'd, they'd like to continue moving forward with this. So, I mean, the other, th the other takeaway with regards to TPP that I had not heard, but when we're in the region, we heard is potentially China's interest, and wouldn't that be the, the sad irony if China joined TPP before the United States joined TPP, which I, I think would be really bad for us. So, other questions? Yeah, please. Dr. Barrett, thanks for uh, your, your remarks. I'm Shane Cooper, I'm United States Army. Um, so, you, you talked about your visit to Singapore. Um, Singapore has, in the past, been pretty reliably a U.S. ally. Uh, by Singapore statements, they're now very much, you know, on the fence at best. Um, how, how do we reverse the impacts of pulling out of the TPP and countering the, the Chinese FDI into Singapore that's moved them from that, that reliable U.S. ally to, to, a, uh, to much less of a, of a stable yeah. ally in the region? I, I mean, I'd still consider Singapore a reliable U.S. ally. I would, um, and it requires a lot of patience on, on our end, separating um, political rhetoric or, or statements from the, the reality on the ground when, when, when you're there. Um, yeah, we, we certainly rotate a, a lot of um, our assets through, through Singapore, through the Philippines. Um, yeah, we're certainly doing a lot with, with Malaysia and the other countries in, in the region. Um, Singapore, very, my impression, Singapore very much wants the U.S. there. But I think they're also concerned because I, I think as much as we have to separate what the political rhetoric that is being used abroad, I think they also have to look past some of the political rhetoric that comes from the United States at, at, at times and look deeper at, at, at our policy. Um, so to, to answer your question, I think how we turn it around is we as Congress have to be much more present there. We as Congress have to be putting forth policy and statements um, because at the end of the day, um, what served us well in the, the Cold War was we didn't have a Democratic or Republican approach to this. We had a strategic approach to it that went from one administration to the next administration, and Congress was pretty consistent. Right now, if you look at where we've gone from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, I think folks in the region are, are confused about what the U.S. strategic goal in the region is. And I think that's where Congress probably has to step up um, because members of Congress are not here for four years or eight years. We're often here for a much longer period of time. And you know, I think that's where working with um, the career professionals within um, our diplomatic corps and, and, and at state, we have to have this longer term strategy for, for the region that is pretty consistent, that doesn't change um, 
you know, every four years or every eight years. And yeah, I think that, that signaling is incredibly important and, and that probably is missing right now. And I think you know, my impression would be you know, that the, there is some concern as to whether the, the U.S. is going to be present in the region or, or, or not. And I, th I think that's dangerous for our own strategic and economic interests. Um, so, yeah. Good morning. Piper Campbell. I'm a, a retired diplomat. Um, I wondered if you could speak at all to the Philippines portion of yeah. your trip, and especially from a congressional point of view, because our, our relationship with, with the Philippines is so challenged. And so I want to draw out from you your thinking about how we balance the strategic, the values argument, um, and how we engage with the Philippines at this point. Uh, I, our relationship with the Duterte administration's challenge our relationship with the people of the Philippines is as strong as, as ever. I mean, they're very fond of um, the United States and, and who we are. Um, you know, we, part of the, the Philippines portion was, you know, we went down to Mindanao. You know, clearly there's some um, terror threats and, and, and we have um, our special operators down there in a supportive role um, supporting the, the, the the Filipino um, military, they very much appreciate the United States being there. They very much get that. Um, you know, we met with some humanitarian um, and human rights groups as well. And, you know, again, this is, I think we have to work through the, 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 the current administration and look past some of the, the rhetoric um, and, and look a, a, a little bit deeper. Um, I think there's a, a recognition that for their own maritime security that they, they need the United States um, very much present uh, as well. Um, and, and they want us, they certainly want us there. Um, again, there's political rhetoric and then there's the, 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 the deeper um, economic ties and, and again part of you know, this is a conference on APEC um, economic cooperation and economic um, part of the reason why I so strongly believe TPP was pulling out of TPP was a strategic blunder and Philippines wasn't there but they probably eventually would have been there is countries that trade together and build those economic ties and economic relations, you know, have deeper bonds, and I think history would would suggest that. Um, I also get the you know the, the Philippines are the people and the business entities and, and and others are worried about China's approach to 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 the the region and, and China's economic approach, and they very much want us present there. I didn't totally answer your question because um, the Duterte administration obviously t takes one approach and, and it you know, does put out a very anti-American um, rhetoric, which isn't what you see from the, the people and, 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 and you know, certainly sometimes from the, the parliamentarians. They just, you know, they, um, he's very popular in, in the Philippines. Um, so I, again, I think this is where it's a parliamentarian to parliamentarian or, or members of Congress to, 
to members of parliament, and I think that's also why Congress has to be very present here, sending a different signal, and half of it's just showing up um, and being there, and I, you know, again, that was part of the reason for, for doing this, and I would hope we continue to send CODEL after CODEL um, to the region, because it, it does matter when members of Congress show up. They take notice. Probably take one last question. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, Katie Wang with NTD TV. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, one is that um, during this U.S.-China uh, trade conflict, uh, we have heard that uh, many uh, investment uh, manu uh, manufacturers, they withdraw their supply chain, uh, they remove their supply chain from China and in invest into Southeast Asia. So I'm just wondering, in your trip, did you see that's happening? And also another question about Hong Kong, because yesterday Congress uh, uh, just uh, passed this Hong Kong Human Rights and uh, Democracy Act. Um, I'm just wondering when, when you visit the region, what's the region's uh, response to this Hong Kong situation? So, um, you know, with regards to um, supply chains and, and, and manufacturing, I do think there's some, some movement. Um, certainly you're seeing um, some of the supply chains moving to Vietnam and, and elsewhere and even in, in, into the Philippines. Um, that said, I don't know how um, the trade conversations between the Trump administration and China are going to um, ultimately end up because we've seen it, you know, in the last three years, it's been all, all over the place. And, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with some of the issues that President Trump raises. Um, I think many of us in Congress are uncomfortable with the tactics and methods that, that he's using. And, you know, they're, um, and, we, we have to figure out strategically um, where the administration and Congress are all on the same page and we're executing a longer term strategy with China. It's not a given that we have to have an adversarial relationship in the 21st century. We're only in the first um, fifth of, of the 21st century. China's not going anywhere. Is there an opportunity to, and again, I thought TPP was that opportunity to get China to make some of the necessary economic reforms that I actually think are in China's long-term economic interests. Um, you know, and if we can't work through, again, in, in the entire region and probably globally, it's not the United States or China, it's gonna be both of us. So how do you find that um, collaborative but competitive relationship? So, um, we're not there yet, but I think that's an urgent issue for, for Congress, along with um, State Department, along with um, you know, our, our thought leaders and policy leaders to come up with a long-term strategy for the, the region. Again, I would go to the Cold War example as there was not a Democratic or Republican strategy. Externally, when we were looking at the rest of the world, we had a a strategy that went from one administration to the next. You had small policy shifts and so forth, but you know, by and large, the foundational values and foundational approach during the Cold War were pretty consistent. Um, I think we have to have, uh, and we don't at, at this juncture, we've gone, you know, um, again, in my short time in Congress, 180 degrees at, at times. With regards to Hong Kong, I think what we did yesterday was important. I think, you know, it was the world's oldest democracy. I think it is important for us to um, make statements of, of support. I, again, I, I understand how China may not like those statements, but 
you know, this is a, a budding democracy and or a budding movement of human rights and, and you know, rule of law. And, you know, I, I think it is important for us to, to you know, these are values that, that we hold, um, and we ought to send a signal that we support those folks that are exercising democratic values around the world. So I, I'm going to leave you with, I'm an, again, I'll bring it back to I'm an optimist. Um, you know, we have to take a long view here, because China can certainly take a, a long view, and I don't think we take a long enough view um, in, in the United States. And you've heard me say a couple times, looking back at you know, the Cold War as an example, what, what I'd say is if we think about um, the world order post-World War II and what we did as the United States of America um, ar around the world was pretty remarkable in terms of rebuilding Germany, re rebuilding Japan, you know, stepping up and, you know, um, the Republic of Korea 40 years ago was one of the poorest nations in the world, and if you see where it is today, I'd love to have their infrastructure. Um, and we created stable democracies. We created economic competitors, but we also lifted millions of people out of poverty. The next 70 years aren't going to be the same as the last 70 years. The world is different. You know, what 2016 exposes, we do have our own domestic challenges that we have to address. But the world is a better place with American leadership and American presence. Um, you know, there are times where we have been able to do economic development that wasn't always in our domestic interest for the sake of, you know, helping other countries rise up. We've got to approach the 21st century in a very similar way that um, we have to be there. We have to be working with countries that share similar values. Um, it does bother me when I'm in the region and they say America's in retreat because I don't feel that we're in retreat. And, and it's a bad signal to the rest of the world if they think America's in retreat because then they are going to cut the deal with others who may not share our values. Um, and the one, you know, I'll leave it with this, the one takeaway from the region is they very much want us there. They very much want the United States along with our allies, along with Australia and New Zealand and, and others in the region. And we ought to take them up on that and, and, and not retreat. So that'd be my takeaway. We're very much interested in the region as Congress and we're very much present. So thank you to CSIS for the invitation. Thank all of you for, for being here. Um, it's an interesting time in American democracy and yeah, but we will, we will persevere and keep moving forward. Thank you. Well, unusually for CSIS, we're early by just a few minutes. So I'm going to ask the panel to, uh, to come up. And what we'll do is begin the panel just a few minutes early. And the good news then is that uh, we'll have a slightly longer coffee break uh, at the end uh, between the two panels. So. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, as Amy said in the beginning, uh, we've divided the, the day into the 
essentially the economic part, which is this part, and it will be followed by the security and, I guess, geopolitical part, uh, which will come uh, immediately after this one, followed by a presentation from the head of the, the ADB. Uh, <coughs> kind of an artificial distinction, because these uh, issues merge and overlap, as, as the Congressman implied in some of his remarks, but uh, it gives us an opportunity to focus in a little bit more detail on, um, on each set of issues uh, uh, discreetly. Uh, and this panel in particular is going to be focused on APEC uh, and the role APEC plays particularly in, in uh, economics and, and trade in, in the region. And we have a very uh, distinguished group of panelists here. I want to introduce them first and then uh, rather than ask them to give speeches, uh, which would be a pain for them and boring for you, we're going to have a conversation uh, at, after which we'll then have uh, an opportunity for you all to ask questions. So um, I think I'll just work my way down from, from near to far. Uh, next to me is the Honorable Rosemary Banks, who is New Zealand's ambassador to the United States. She's had a, a long career, I won't say how long, in the, uh, I, this happens to me a lot, I'm introduced as a veteran, which is a, a nice way of saying, of saying old, but uh, she's had an extensive career in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade in New Zealand, including six overseas assignments. Uh, besides being an ambassador here, uh, she was permanent representative to the UN in New York. She was ambassador to France, ambassador to Portugal, uh, New Zealand's permanent representative to the OECD, and she also served as deputy chief of mission in the Solomon Islands and Australia, which are two particularly important posts for her country. Um, as deputy secretary in New Zealand's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, she was responsible for multilateral, legal, and consular affairs. She coordinated the emergency responses to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Bali bombings, and the Asian tsunami. Drawing on these experiences, she led the development of a new emergency response system uh, and guidance manual for her, for her government. Uh, next is Richard Cantor, who is the chief credit officer at Moody's. Uh, he heads their credit strategy and standards group, which is responsible for the rating agency's global credit strategy and thematic research the quality and consistency of its ratings across regions and sectors, and the methodologies and models applied in the determination of ratings. From 2009 to 2018, he also served as the chief risk officer, and in that role led Moody's global risk management function. He also uh, most recently served a three-year term at the State Department's Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation APEC Business Advisory Council. Uh, next to uh, Richard is uh, the Honorable Sandra Odkirk, who is, has one of the longer titles, titles in the State Department. She's the U.S. Senior Official for APEC, and also the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands. She's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, uh, joined the Department in 1991, and uh, currently is, as I said, the Senior Official for APEC and DAS for Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, as of last May. Immediately prior to that, she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy Diplomacy in the Energy Bureau, and before that, she was Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Threat Finance and Sanctions in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. She has previous overseas assignments in uh, AIT Taipei, Dublin, uh, Turkey, Jamaica, and Beijing and uh, speaks Chinese and Turkish, actually. 
Uh, and finally, uh, last but by no means least, is uh, Satanori Ito, who is special advisor to METI and the director of, of JETRO, based in uh, New York. Uh, in his early career, he was in charge of U.S. affairs at the Americas Division, International Trade Policy Bureau at uh, METI. Uh, he was also engaged in automobile and energy policy, which you know, if you know Japan, you know are two very important, uh, very important yeah. issues. Uh, between 2015 and 2018, he was responsible for wide-ranging policies related to human capital development and labor market reform in Japan. And since July 2018, he's been responsible for policies related to artificial intelligence and information technology uh, as a member of the Interagency Task Force for AI Policy established under the Prime Minister's office. So we've got a group of, with extensive and diverse uh, uh, ex experience, knowledge, and uh, experience with, with APEC. So I want to begin uh, the conversation with the bigger picture, and then we'll drill down into some um, specific uh, areas, in, in, including high tech, and, and including uh, some things that are happening uh, at the upcoming summit and, and over the next couple of years. But let's begin with uh, the big picture and ask, uh, let me begin with Ambassador Banks uh, and then go to, uh, to Sandra Odkirk and then the others uh, chime in as you wish. Uh, what, uh, we're, we're in a difficult uh, or a complicated, let's use a more neutral word, we're in a, more, a complicated global trade landscape right now. Uh, the uh, congressman made uh, some reference to it in his response to the last question. Where do you see an organization like APEC? What role can it play in reducing tensions? Does it have a role to play in reducing tensions? How would it do that? Uh, what is the value added of an organization which is plurilateral and essentially voluntary? Rosemary? Well, I think in, uh, in complex times we rely ever more on organizations like APEC where we can have a conversation. It's, it's uh, based on consensus decisions, so it's a good environment to test out new ideas. We've done that a lot in the past. Uh, I think we do feel concern about the uncertainty of the future trade policy direction and therefore rely quite a lot on, on our plurilateral uh, organizations where we can <coughs> maybe keep some momentum going, which becomes a bit more difficult in the rules-based WTO, for example. Sorry, you right. want to? And so I would agree with that. I think APEC really is, it's a laboratory for innovation. It, it's a place where, because it, the, the outcomes are both consensus-based and non-binding, uh, economies can be more ambitious than they might be in a binding environment. Um, it, it allows us to talk about uh, options and models in innovative areas, and, and I would really highlight the, the role that APEC uh, is playing in the digital economy uh, as an area where it can, we can be very forward-looking. Uh, and also, APEC is an environment where we can sort of jointly work together to come up with voluntary measures. So voluntary um, disciplines that will advance the role of women and girls in STEM sectors and those um, science, technology, and engineering uh, uh, careers. That type of area, I think, is, is uniquely valuable for APEC. 
um, and, it, and it's a unique role that APEC plays in facilitating trade and investment um, among economies that represent a, um, a majority of uh, global trade. So last year when we did this event, I recall, I think it was Monica actually who made the point that uh, to sort of encapsulate that in saying that APEC's greatest strength is its weakness because it allows for experimentation. It doesn't bind people to things and make them uh, more cautious. Uh, in, that, in that sense, it doesn't have some of the complexity of the WTO. Uh, would you guys agree with that, or is that an oversimplification? Richard? Well, I think at this time in which uh, multilateralism is in retreat and uh, all the tensions in the region, both the economic slowdown and uh, the flashpoints, uh, geopolitical risks throughout the region, uh, it's, it's really more important than ever that APEC uh, play a strong role. It's a bit in the background for right now. Right now, it's a lot of US-China uh, standoff. But, but uh, we heard from the congressman, you know, TPP 11, you know, is still waiting there uh, for either China or the US to jump in. And other initiatives like that can be developed by the other countries. Uh, for their own benefits and will be available for uh, the other players to join in when, when uh, there's a change in, in, in perspective on, on what they want to accomplish. Actually, yeah, thank you. My personal attachment to APEC goes back to 1995 when the, there was a, uh, the Osaka APEC Leaders Summit and I myself attended the meeting. And I really remember there was a heat, there was a momentum so in 1994, there was a goal, goal, and in 1995, in Osaka, we agreed upon the, the action plan. So I think there was a context in 1992, uh, the must lift treaty was signed to establish the European Union, and also the NAFTA was signed. So there was a really a fear that uh, the world economy will be broken into the, the blocks. And so for Japan, this APEC is special. So in 1978, late Prime Minister Ohira uh, kind of floated the idea of the Asia-Pacific Open Regional Initiative, which consequently led to PECC, which is a, a foundation of the apex. And I think it is now, I think it is time we should revisit the importance of APEC. So I think the, uh, the importance of APEC is unchanged. Go ahead. Who wants to go first? Well, I just wanted to add one thing in terms of the value add, and it's a stunningly obvious point, but the fact that our leaders get together is also a really useful element, especially in, shall we say, complex times. So I think you know, that's not to be underestimated. The congressman made a mention of the fact that countries that trade together have deeper bonds together, and I think that's certainly true. And the fact that they all have to wear funny shirts helps, is that... <laughs> Is that part of it? That's part of the bonding, yeah. definitely. <laughs> Richard? Yeah, I want to add a couple more things. Um, so first of all, uh, the trade agreements and trade initiatives get all the headlines, uh, and they are very important. And maybe they're the most important thing uh, that APEC is, you know, is trying to promote. But as already referenced, uh, there are lots of other work streams uh, underway all the time in APEC. Um, dealing with the infrastructure uh, and well-being of the populations throughout the region across a whole list of, of, of uh, 
areas of importance, closely related, perhaps generally speaking, to the sustainable development goals, um, but also building resiliency in some of, uh, some of the less advanced countries, um, capacity building, sharing experiences, which you know, just strengthens the entire environment and makes it a better place to trade, if, you, if that's still your, your number one consideration, or for security, if that's your secondary consideration. But uh, so there's a lot going on sort of beneath the surface that many people aren't focusing on. And related to that, my, my experience um, in, in working with ABAC, in which the business community has an opportunity to um, touch base uh, formally through meeting with the leaders and, and participating in parallel with, with the uh, senior official meetings process, but also uh, informally through the connectivity that we just have uh, an openness to have discussions between uh, business leaders and, 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 and officials around APEC issues is very valuable. There aren't as many structured methods for business to provide input. Uh, and also, uh, uh, recently I've joined uh, PEC, uh, which is uh, representing more academic and think tank type perspectives. Uh, and a very uh, strong presence in other countries in the U.S. It has not been as active for the U.S., but we hope to make it more active in the coming years. And it'll be another, another structured way in which uh, views from the broader community can be put into a multilateral process, uh, which I think is very, very useful and it's special to APEC. Let me pursue one, one element of that, if I may. It occurs to me, you're really the only representative of the private sector on, on the panel. Everybody else represents their respective governments. Uh, one of the, the big events at, at the APEC summit will be the CEO summit that takes place concurrently, um, which is an important part of the proceedings. What are the other ways in which private companies can make their views known to APEC or can interact with APEC? Well, in the U.S., uh, you met Monica Whaley earlier. She heads NCAPEC, uh, which... Uh, uh, is an organization where there's formal links to almost 100 uh, major corporations who are, are members and they have uh, meetings and, and, and many opportunities to uh, share uh, their perspectives and either funnel those through the uh, three ABAC members who attend these regular meetings or um, they can use the CEO Summit as an opportunity to arrange meetings uh, and, and express their views, and then just in the relationships that are being established, and there are quite a, quite a few, um, there's just an opportunity to effectively meet one-on-one. -on -one. It might appear to be lobbying to some. I would say it's educational is it's, it's the objective. Um, and then there are, uh, you know, again, there are, are, are ministry, ministers' meetings on energy, ministers' meetings on, on trade, ministers' meetings on, on a host of other issues, food security issues, where uh, business, not just from the U.S., but around the world, have direct interest, and, and I've, my experience has been policymakers are very interested in knowing what business has to say on these topics. Diplomats, do you agree with that? I, I, I would agree, actually, with um, both Ambassador Banks uh, and, and with Richard's comments about, about the role of business. Um, APEC is an important convening opportunity for senior leaders and for ministers at the various ministerials to, to get together and to speak um, somewhat informally. Um, but also the, the role that the business community plays within APEC as sort of members of the economy's delegations, not just at the leaders and the ministerial level, 
but throughout the APEC calendar is, in, in my experience, unique within uh, multilateral organizations. Um, we really have a lot more exchange with the business community at what I would call the working level, the routine kind of day-to-day -day level, and it informs um, APEC's role as an incubator for new ideas, um, and it gives us an opportunity actually to hear directly from business when those new ideas are, are not working so well. And if I could uh, add that in terms of the future, looking over the horizon to the vision for 2040, the voice of business through ABAC and through PEC of what the organization should do in future is, is going to be really critical in shaping that. And those two organizations have already made their views known of what direction the future should take. Well, let's talk. Um uh, before we get to the future, let's talk about, well, let's talk about the near-term future first and then the long-term future. Uh, one of the topics for discussion uh, regularly, but particularly, I think this year or next year, will be the, the Bogart Goals, Bogar Goals, which were established in uh, 1994. And uh, the basic underlying one is the long-term goal of free and open trade and investment in the Asia-Pacific region. And the goal, the, the date set for achieving that goal was next year, 2020. Uh, for the last several uh, cycles, there have been uh, biannual progress reports uh, on how they're doing on that goal. The last one was in 2018. I assume this is going to be a topic of conversation at this year's summit. Uh, and I think it'll be a topic of conversation going forward both next year and uh, in, the f in the future. Uh, New Zealand is the chair after Malaysia in 2021, uh, so I, the ambassador may have uh, something to say about that. But let's look at the approaching deadline for the free and open trade and investment goal. Maybe uh, each of you can comment, or anybody that wants to, how have we done? Uh, how have we made progress? Where is there still room for improvement, assuming there is room for improvement? Uh, if you could give the economies uh, as a whole, I don't want you to ask, to ask you to rat out individual nations unless you want to. Uh, would, you, would you give the organization, what grade would you give the organization on achieving its goals? Who wants to go first? Sandra. Go ahead. You will go. Okay. So I think we have done, so the, Bo the Boger goals have proved to be really um, enduring. I think they helped uh, back in the early 90s to focus the attention of the APEC economies on liberalization and on sort of the core competencies and value add that APEC has. Um, and, and one of the core values of APEC really is that APEC gives us an opportunity to be ambitious. That non-binding nature enables economies to set reach goals and you know, inherent in that is you're succeeding even if you don't meet all the reach goals. And, and the other thing that I think um, you know, is uh, important for us to remember is that when the Boger goals were outlined uh, in the early 90s, no one had a vision of where the digital economy would take us. Um, the, the grasping that the digital economy is really the future of all sectors 
is something that was um, you know, beyond the crafters uh, of the Boger Goals. It was, quite frankly, I think beyond certainly governments and, and likely industry as well. And so as, the, as we work towards those goals, the foundational environment shifts. And I think APEC has proven able to adapt to a shifting environment within the general framework of the goals. And so looking forward to APEC's post-2020 vision, you know, where, where does APEC go after the first 30 years? I think it's important that we adhere to, or is that we develop goals that are ambitious, but that are also flexible, and that can change with, with the times. I'm going to introduce a note of gloom and pessimism at this point. Uh, agree that the Bogor goals were a great stretch goal and they've taken us a long way toward the regional economic integration that we were seeking. But the last couple of years, uh, we've seen an unprecedented number of additional trade restrictive measures come on. We've seen a retreat of the reduction in, in um, the global tariffs that we'd seen for all the previous years. So we feel that you know the stretch has just gone out of the stretch goal a bit. Uh, we're particularly concerned, as you would expect us to be, that agricultural tariffs stay high. They're still around 12% or above, whereas the reduction in tariffs generally was wonderful, you know, from 89, uh, from around 17% to 5.3. But agricultural tariffs haven't kept up. Services, we've also not done so well on. Now, admittedly, as Sandra's pointed out, you know, we couldn't have envisaged in 1994 what the present-day economy would look like. But we're a little gloomy. Um, we're hopeful we can pick up uh, and keep that movement going forward as we commit ourselves to a future vision. But in terms of the ratings, we would say a B-plus for manufacturers, that's where we've done well, uh, a C-minus for services, and a D-plus for agriculture. My goodness, you're a tough but, professor. Yeah. up. Yeah. We agree with Sanderson. I think the existence of APEC and the concept of the uh, FTAP, FTA, the <coughs> Pacific, played the, the role of the umbrella uh, so as to kind of stimulate all other the regional undertakings, including ASEAN plus three, ASEAN plus six, TPP, and the RCEP. I think everything fit into the, this umbrella of APEC. Uh, in the, uh, under the concept of the open regionalism. But also I think that APEC has done a great job in the sectoral areas like information technology products and the uh, environmental goods. So I think, again, this APEC uh, can play both umbrella and also the, uh, getting to the, the, the details of the other sectoral issues. So I think it has a kind of the two-folded uh, function. Well, you've all done a good job of anticipating all my other questions. Uh, but I, I think we, uh, let me go back to uh, a couple things. Uh, Rosemary was the only one who was willing to give a grade. Does anybody else want to uh, uh, give them a, a grade? Do you, do you agree that, uh, the rest of you agree with her that the most significant progress has been in industrial tariffs and the most significant lagging area has been agriculture? That a, a fair statement, yes. uh, I would think. Uh, clearly, um, and I think uh, Sandra mentioned this, one of the things that, uh, if you will, the, 
Something that nobody thought of in 1994 was digital trade and e-commerce. Uh, NAFTA has the same problem. And uh, one of the things that happened in the, the updated uh, USMCA agreement now being uh, considered in the Congress has been the adding of a digital trade chapter uh, to address an issue that was simply not covered in 1994. Uh, this is sort of the same thing, and we'll get to that as well. But uh, are there other issues that, that uh, have come up in the last 25 years that, we sim that simply were not addressed uh, in 94? Richard? Well, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead uh, to Go the ahead. Uh, Everybody future uh, post-2020 goals, but I mean, it, it kind of fits together. Um, so free and open trade and investment, uh, the Boger goal, uh, you know, there's a backlash. It's, we're in retreat. And, you know, we're all thinking about um, the fundamentals driving that backlash. Uh, and, and, and we have to... Uh, perhaps, if, even if that remains the big objective, sustained, flourishing economic growth with the help of, of uh, free and open trade, uh, there's something was missing from that statement, at least as we conceive it today, I think generally conceive it today, which is part of what explains why uh, there's been a backlash. And so uh, in some of the drafts I've seen actually put forward uh, by a team led by ABAC New Zealand, actually. Um, uh, I saw language uh, expanding upon the, the, the goals, which incorporated uh, resilience, inclusion, and sustainability. Uh, big words can have many interpretations for, for people. You might, and, and that's a good thing sometimes, because then you can get people with differing point of views to still sign the line, uh, because they've interpreted it differently. But at least the way I, I'm looking at it, um, so resilience, uh, if you think of economic resilience, when you expose yourself to open trade and capital flows and all that, you have a lot of risk of shock uh, that gets transmitted. Be closed, you're a little more protected from that. And, and what we've seen already uh, through the APEC process is, is a lot of uh, support in, in, in building more resilient financial markets in, in, in emerging uh, APEC. Uh, through uh, greater reliance on domestic funding, bond markets, and uh, broadening away from banking systems and avoiding uh, too much foreign currency debt, and so more resilient economies, and we've seen that helpful. So that's, a, that's an important uh, pillar to help support free and open trade and investment. And then um, uh, inclusion, well, I mean, this is the big issue, right? So unless everyone feels, most groups in, the, in these economies feel they're benefiting from this, from this uh, medicine, or, or, or well, we think it's, 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 it's actually a sweet, delicious candy or dessert, but uh, um, of, of opening up more trade and investment. And if that's how you feel they benefit, uh, there's not gonna be the broad support needed. So, so, and then that's inclusion. And then the last, uh, with sustainability. So there's sustainability, again, interpreted different ways. Um, the uh, U.S. government's interpreting that as, you know, if you engage in, in, these, uh, in these projects, uh, your finances of your economy need to be sustainable, so you, you, don't, you don't want to crash under the weight of overexpansion. Um, but, uh, you know, broader consideration of sustainability, of course, is that we, we have to protect uh, the environment as, as we grow and, and modernize. So, um, in order to get everyone on board with 
um, expanding global trade and investment, there has to be a sense that this will be done in a sustainable way. So when I see post uh, Bogart Gold's visions, I think they include the original vision and add these three elements, and they're important for generating the support that, wasn't la that was lacking, the deep level of support in, in the broader populations was lacking for these goals. Um, they were really brought on high by, uh, by, by policymakers and business leaders, but didn't have the broad support of the population. That's what we need to focus on going forward. Peter. Another issue, actually, I have to say this. Uh, 20 years ago, we didn't, we didn't use the word decoupling. And I think it's not even the, just a matter of the US-China. I think 20 years ago, economic issues and uh, security or defense issues was separate. But these days, obviously, so 5G, AI, export control, IPR, everything is related. So, so there is a, so all the governments, uh, including us, have to defend the national interest. But at the same time, we have to draw the, the balance. So I think this is a new challenge for APEC. So I think we have to work on that issue. I think I want to come back to these, the, the three uh, goals you laid out in a few minutes. But I want to come back first to something that Ambassador Banks referred to. Uh, it's not a surprise to say that the lagging element here has been agriculture which is subject to the most protection globally. Uh, it's not an APEC-specific issue. If you go to the WTO, if you go to virtually any plurilateral agreement, you always find uh, that being the most difficult, the most contentious negotiation, uh, the most difficult one, and the one that ends up with the most barriers, uh, the EU being a classic case. I'm a little surprised that, that uh, you, you gave them just, what, a, a C- minus in services. Uh, which I would have thought would be an issue that would be uh, easier, uh, certainly easier than agriculture, and, uh, and because it's growing, uh, that there would be an awful lot of opportunities there for people to take down the barriers and further enhance uh, trade in that sector. So why is services lagging? Can any, anybody want to speculate on that? Well, I, I don't know about why they're lagging, but why we gave that uh, rather disappointing mug is because we still see a lot of regulation in the services area and communications and transport and all the areas that um, actually play into the connectivity that we're hoping to achieve within our APEC region. So whether we can sort of speed that up is, is certainly something we hope that might come out of the the revived vision and the, the new energy that we get beyond that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll address that. Not stepping away from the APEC context, I think services are difficult to deal with um, because they, in many cases, are virtual. They're hard to count. Where exactly do you count desi engineering design services? Where are they delivered? You know, when you're counting goods, or you're counting agriculture, there are these huge containers moving across the ocean. You know where they came from and where they end. Services are built into value chains. They are delivered increasingly electronically. They're delivered in a virtual space. Um, it, it, it is conceptually difficult to deal with um, in general, regardless of whether it's APEC or, or some other um, environment where you're discussing services. I will say I think APEC's unique value add with regard to services is the fact that APEC has been 
historically so focused on facilitation, on setting up flexible legal and regulatory uh, environments and, and frameworks that don't preclude cooperation in areas that haven't necessarily been thought of before. And, and I, I am hopeful that going forward, this will be an area where APEC can really make a difference um, by focusing on the need to provide a foundation that is you know, free, fair, open, um, <coughs> that's inclusive, that includes small and medium enterprises, women, um, you know, the, the whole uh, workforce, the whole economy, um, and then that lets, you know, co competitors compete. Um, and, and I think that this is an area where going forward, APEC has set up disciplines in the good space that will um, be directly relevant to services. And um, greater services facilitation is something that we're, we're very focused on. Let me ask the opposite of what we've been talking about. The, the previous question was sort of, what has loomed large as a big issue now that we didn't think of then? We've done that. Let's look at the reverse. What was big then that is no longer important? Anything? Well, the whole, the whole model based on uh, increased trade in manufacturers is not so important because that reliance is, is falling. Uh, in part because of the progress that has been made in achieving the free trade goals, yes? Or just because of the evolution of the economy? I think the more the evolution of the economies because the year-on-year the -year increase in traded goods has flattened, as I understand it. There was a McKinsey Global Institute report on uh, exactly that point. It wasn't APEC specific, it was global, but it noted the uh, uh, slowing, slower, slowing rate of increase in the growth of trade, of trade in manufacturers compared to a much more accelerated growth of trade in services and digital transmissions. Right. I mean, New Zealand is probably the exception, but I would say agriculture itself uh, presumably is a, is, I haven't checked the numbers, but I would think the value added share globally is, is you know, with advances in productivity have been um, greatly reduced in the number of people working in the sector. So I don't know if that, you know, that should bode that it would be less of a flashpoint for most countries uh, in, over, over the long term, um, but it may also drop from the, uh, um, attention as well for that, for that. Yeah, you would think so, but it hasn't really <laughs> no, I, it hasn't I, I, proved no, to be the case. I just, I, I just wish that would happen, you know. <laughs> when, I, when, I teach, when I teach this stuff, I have a graph, a, a slide that talks about a, a United States employment in the agriculture sector from 1790 to 2010, you know, and it's, you know, it's gone from 90%. Put it next to coal. Well, <laughs> That's, it's gone from, well, the, the, the difference is that the barriers are still there. You know, we've got maybe 2% of our population now engaged in farming, uh, yet we have significant uh, agriculture barriers. I mean, we, I think we pale in comparison to the EU, but you would certainly argue that we have significant I agriculture barriers. I would certainly barriers. argue that. Oh, we do. I could argue that at least. Well, <laughs> but I'll well, restrain myself. Yeah, yeah I didn't, don't want to make the case for you, but that's all right. Uh, but. 
Uh, you make, it's, it's an interesting point. Because of the, the way that global economies are changing and the, the, the progression towards services and digital transmission, it is true that some things are more important now than they used to be. And as the, 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 the mirror image of that is some things are less important than they used to be. And that then kind of gets us into the, 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 uh, the ongoing question of sort of what do we do next and what do we focus on next. And the first question there is, is a very short-term one, is the, the goals, uh, the deadline for achieving the goal was next year. So uh, there will probably be not only stock taking at uh, the summit uh, next month, but uh, probably a bigger stock taking next year. Uh, and what should we do between now and a year from now? Uh, what, is the, what is the most important uh, one or two priorities when it comes to Bogor goals for the next, just for the next year to try to get in under the wire? Anybody? Okay. Um, well, let me have a go. I mean, all right. I, th I think in, in terms of our, our uh, APEC officials, their, their focus is still on the unfinished business, you know, is sort of still the the work that we've yet to do in completing the in winding back the remaining restrictions on the on the regional economic integration. So I think it's it's um, you know it's time to sort of look forward, but it's also time to look at what we haven't still done. Well, let me ask you, since New Zealand will be the chair in 2021, have you started planning? Have you started thinking about uh, what you want the themes to be that year? We have, but it's, uh, it's, it's bad form in APEC, I think, to, to get too far ahead of the next host. So I know that uh, Malaysia has a really tough challenge to get the, the, the new vision statement over the line. I think that's the critical thing. Our work program that we would want everybody to start talking about in 2021 will depend very much on what we come out with next year. But some of the areas are the ones that you just mentioned. You know, we're certainly uh, looking to focus on, well, the remaining <coughs> regional integration, but sustainability, inclusion of, of women, minorities, a, a more inclusive economy generally. Um, we'll also want to, to look at, at the transition from our existing economies to the more digitally driven and how to get the best out of the technology changes. I think the, 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 the one of the big challenges that we haven't so far talked about is the change in the future of work and the expected losses of, you know, around 500 million jobs to automation up to 2030. So this is something that we didn't ever, of course, anticipate in Bogor goals, but we're going to have to surely think about as we look over the horizon to the next 20 years. For the benefit of, of people who may not uh, have thought a lot about it, can you say a few words about what the vision statement is? Okay. Or well, what the concept is? I'd well, the, the, vision, the vision is going to be adopted in 2020, next year, under the Malaysian leadership for what will the organization aim to do out to 2040. So I think that discussion is, is underway now in the various, uh, amongst the various members and indeed in the various bodies like ABEC and PEC. But Do you want to give so, us any inside poop on how that's going? So I can, I can pick up on that. So over the course of the last couple years, um, 
the APEC Vision Group, uh, PEC, ABAC, and, and other sort of APEC-related institutions have been discussing what a post-2020 vision would look like. Uh, those bodies have, have or are about to tender those reports to senior officials and leaders uh, at the summit uh, next month. Um, at which point, the, the work which will be conducted by senior officials to sort of work through, uh, during the Malaysian host year, what the APEC uh, post-2020 vision will be, will begin. So it started in the affiliated bodies. It hasn't yet moved, but it's about within the next 30 days. It's gonna to move to the, the APEC senior official representatives of the economies. Um, and so it, it's too early to sort, I would say, prejudge what the 2020 vision will look like. Mm. Um, but I think um, it, it's been pretty clear at the ABAC, PEC, and uh, APEC vision group level that there, that there are some key themes that are enduring. You know, facilitation of trade and investment, uh, opening markets, the need um, to, to, to handle this inclusion, human capital issue that I think Ambassador Banks referred to with the, the future of work. Um, and so it will be, it'll be, um, it will make for a very busy and hopefully very productive uh, year next year. Okay, um, useful. It sounds like, uh, well, let me add, take that a step further. Uh, it looks like from what several of you said that, that the, uh, the principles that Richard articulated of resilience, inclusion, and sustainability are likely to appear in this, uh, in this document or in, in, mm -hmm. in some fashion. So um, anything else uh, beyond that? Well, I mean, I think just to sort of put it in another way, I think we've come to an end of a, a, a sort of a first phase of APEC achievement, perhaps, and, and we're at a, I think, quite a, we see it as quite a critical turning point over the next couple of years. Uh, Sandra's alluded to the work that will need to be done next year to get the vision statement. And, I, you know, I think in the, in the context that we're now in, that we've all acknowledged in a number of different ways, it's going to be quite, quite a challenge to get agreement on that vision for the next years up to 2040. And let's just hope we can do that together because, you know, the, 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 the dynamism, the, the sort of momentum of the organisation will depend very much on getting a good consensus around what the future work is going to look like. Yeah, so I would say watch this space. This event next year, mm -hmm. um, by that point, we'll have a much better idea of, yes. of the sort of broad parameters, um, or at least if we haven't, we're going to be in for a really difficult next 30 days of negotiations, <laughs> broad parameters of what the agreed post-2020 vision would be. Yes. So uh, I... It's really a question, but it's kind of a concern, but maybe we can be optimistic if we try to find a way. Um, we can have, if the vision statement is broader and it includes uh, more uh, ambiguous terms to some extent or you know, subject to multiple interpretations, um, it may not translate into 
uh, specific objectives and measurable uh, uh, KPIs mm -hmm. that the original Boger vision statement did. Uh, and that will perhaps be helpful in getting a vision statement uh, approved, <laughs> but then it'll, it'll be a challenge going forward after to hold people to account and, and to actually measure progress against it. I, it's just a reality. I don't have a sort of answer to that, but that, I think that's the world we're in right at the moment, but uh, may, maybe someone can say something more positive. So, you know, inclusion, um, I can think of certain things you might measure for inclusion, but will, will people be comfortable um, signing up to those once you define them and, and, and uh, environment, you know, and so on. I mean, I, I hope that, that we get the vision, maybe the idea is you get the vision statement passed and then you fight that next, what might be a bit of a battle uh, after that. Well, you could say that about uh, all of them. I mean, does sustainability mean that APEC's going to tackle climate change? Yeah, I mean, that's my point. Yeah, Well, <coughs> all I have to say is, I think so, again, uh, we are in the time of the reframing the apex. I think it's a good chance. So nobody can foresee what will be like five years later or 10 years later. So let's be ambitious. And I think uh, that what we will talk about in Chile and next year's apex will be really uh, the, uh, lay the ground for the, uh, our envisioning the, the future uh, what the economy will be. So let's, let's be ambitious. I think it's going to fall on New Zealand to be uh, very clever in 2021 <laughs> because we're going to inherit the vision statement and try to do what you've just pointed out, you know, turn it into something of a work program that can bind people to, to go forward together and not just sign up to some nice fancy words. We'll have to make sure that we've got a particularly smart shirt to get everybody together. I think. <laughs> well, I can, I can say from experience, you have very capable diplomats uh, who have a long history, including the WTO, being tasked with the most difficult issues, Yes. Mm. Uh, it, which is, I think, a, a indicative of the respect with which the country is held uh, and the, uh, I think the appreciation of, uh, that people on all sides of an issue have for its, its uh, objectivity and fairness. I Thank think. you. So it's a, uh, I can't think of anybody that would be better equipped to be in charge then, but it's going to be uphill. Let's uh, spend uh, the next uh, a few minutes on sort of high-tech issues, if you will. Um, and I confess to uh, semi-ignorance, everything I know about AI I learned from watching Terminator movies, so I may not be the best, yeah. the best person to, to ask about that. but. Uh, APEC has been a leader in creating standards for the digital economy. Uh, it uh, developed the cross-border uh, privacy rules system uh, and has been you know, involved in other issues as well. Who wants to say a few words about uh, what they've been doing and, and how this is being received, whether the standards that are being created are being adopted or not, and whether this is a, you see this is going to be a, a uh, an ongoing and increasing uh, in importance role for APEC. Yeah. I think to begin with, Asia is going digital. So more than US, more than Japan. So all those Asian countries are really <coughs> in the process of transforming themselves, but not, a, not only the business, but those, the personal uh, social life is also being transformed a lot by digital technology. So there's a huge, 
huge transaction in the e-commerce and also the data, data flow. But I, more and more, uh, there's an uh, increasing need to sort of, um, again, lay the ground for those kind of the, the free flow of data. Just saying free flow does not really mean it, there will be a free flow. So free flow is not for free. We have to make efforts for that. And in that context, um, and uh, the speed of the technological development is so fast, and the government is having the trouble with catching up. The modality of APEC being the voluntary, flexible, uh, self-initiated um, mechanism is very much um, suitable for this kind of the, uh, the digital policy making process. So in that context, I think APEC has um, become a great incubator and also the catalyst uh, for this kind of the digital discussion. And the Prime Minister Abe for the idea of the data free flow with trust, um, meaning the, the laying the ground for like cybersecurity or the privacy. But that's also in line with uh, the Pathfinder initiatives um, led by US government on digital trade, and which was uh, approved by um, the APEC member in this August. And I think that's a fantastic initiative in that uh, all the members uh, can kind of jump into uh, in the areas they can. So I think digital and APIC are really kind of fit into each other. So I think this is one of the, uh, the promising area that we should focus on. Right, and, and so um, going back to, to digital, I think what we've really seen this year uh, during the various APEC meetings is an evolution uh, from what had been an e-commerce steering group to a more broadly applicable uh, digital economy steering group, um, which recognizes that the digital economy isn't just um, sending payments uh, digitally. It, it's foundational to all sorts of businesses that weren't connected to the digital economy even as recently as, say, three to five years ago. And I think what's important is that the digital economy work going forward focus on uh, three things. First, and, and this is probably true of all, all work within, within APAC, that the regulations be flexible and scalable and interoperable. Um, it, it doesn't help if regulations in the United States don't match with regulations in Japan, which don't match with other, it, it makes trade sclerotic, if not impossible. Um, and then specific to digital economy, we need to look at the paired issues of privacy and cybersecurity. Because without cybersecurity, companies and customers are unsure that their data will get the privacy that it needs and deserves. And, and so figuring out ways to ensure that we have everything from online dispute resolution to uh, means of having you know, data, data privacy, data exchange with trust, um, ensuring that data is private regardless of whether it's stored in the cloud, um, avoiding the data localization requirements that limit trade. All of that is this basket of work that we know now. It, these aren't future industries, these are now industries 
that we know now we have to deal with. What our challenge going forward is really ensuring that we don't make a closed and restrictive framework that makes it impossible for us to deal with issues that come up five or 10 years from now because we've, we've locked ourselves into a framework that is not adaptable and, and flexible. Can I just add a little example of countries getting together on this? Uh, New Zealand, Singapore and Chile have come to a, a digital partnership agreement which we're going to sign together at the leaders' meeting in Chile. And that'll be something that we hope other countries might be interested, other economies in APEC might be interested in to either join in on or to take a look at in any case. Well, it'll be interesting to see. These have proven to be uh, divisive issues, uh, in part, because they, they get at what some governments regard as co uh, core issues about, of control, really, of both of uh, data and, uh, and, and their population. And what we've seen so far, in, uh, and I want to pursue the, the cross-border privacy rules in particular for a moment, what we've seen is very different approaches uh, between China, the United States, and the EU. Uh, the EU in particular has developed its own uh, GDPR. Uh, I've thought of, that APEC really had, had opened the door here to uh, perhaps some effort to try to close the gap. Uh, can anybody comment on how the APEC members are doing with respect to uh, uh, adoption of the, of the APEC uh, cross-border privacy rule system? Are, are countries signing up for it? Is this viable or is this simply out there in the ozone sitting there? I know we haven't signed up for it, but to be honest, I'm not sure about the discussion and the debate behind that, where we're up to. Actually, in this June, we had a G20 leader summit in Osaka, and that will kind of the, make the ground for the, the coming Chile EPIC summit. And in the G20 state leader statement, um, there was a big discussion about these privacy issues. And uh, the agreed language in the statement was, uh, I think there were the two keywords. One was the framework in comparison with uh, the, the concept of the regulatory. So it's not rather uh, the one single law or one single regulation prevailing the bar all, all over the world, but it's rather frameworks uh, within respective member and countries. And, but the second keyword will be interoperability, as Sanderson said. So it's like, so it's not like a GDPR dominating the world, but uh, so all the APEC members are now trying to have their uh, framework, not only in the privacy, but also like in the cybersecurity fr framework. And I think that this APEC has done, again, a great job in providing the base of CBPR, uh, which is a kind of the, uh, the mutual recognition system in that uh, all those members can uh, kind of certify with each other uh, in this privacy e-certification mechanism. So I think, um, the, again, the interoperability among the frameworks is uh, the kind of the key concept for this digital policy making. And I think that the APEC CBPA has provided a great model. And so, so I'll say um, with the decision by the Philippines to join CBPR uh, in August, there are now nine APEC economies that have joined onto the APEC cross-border privacy rules system. We think that this is a critical mass uh, of APEC economies that will 
enable those um, members that have chosen to join CBPR to really set up a global kind of compliance risk assurance uh, system that will facilitate trade. Um, I think that the real key for, for us in looking at privacy rules and, and how data flows across borders is that the underlying principle needs to be that government should not make decisions that restrict or impede trade. And, and, and we think that, that APEC is going down a path that will support trade while at the same time providing the assurance that um, consumers and customers need and that companies need that data is secure, that it's being protected, it's not being abused, um, and that, that will then invigorate and enable uh, digital trade across borders. And I am sitting next to the compliance guy, so I hope I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> okay, I think that we have some time left now for questions uh, from you all. And there's someone right here in the front who's going to wait for the microphone. Tell us who you are uh, and ask a question, please. <clears throat> Thanks, Bill. Uh, John Mullen from McClarty Associates. May I ask two slightly unrelated questions? Please. <laughs> Thank you. Related to APEC, though, I hope. They're the, both the related to APEC, yes. Um, the, the, the first is that while all of you have discussed the importance of APEC and the breadth of its mission, which is very uh, impressive, it is, of course, an international organization in that region that includes five countries in, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but despite all of the good work, uh, a lot of attention is paid to uh, leaders' summits. And last year in Papua New Guinea, they weren't even able to achieve a, a leaders' statement. Um, many commentators felt that uh, that was not that did not augur well for the for the future of APEC. So I wonder if you could comment on that. And then uh, I know this the topic is the uh, post Bogar goals, um, but in fact um, they haven't been met. When they were originally set up uh, in 1994, APEC thought it would be a, an FTAP would be accomplished through the WTO. Uh, eventually, in the in the 2000s, they shifted to seeing it through regional trade agreements such as uh, TPP and RCEP. Uh, that hasn't uh, gone gone so well in the case of TPP, at least. In 2014, and I'll finish this in two seconds. In in 2014, in Beijing, uh, while the U.S. was still pushing TPP. Um, the Chinese raised FTAP. There was an annex to the to the uh, this statement. Uh, there was, I thought, sort of a roadmap. I wondered what had happened to that in APEC. Thank you. Who wants to tackle either of those? I can tackle the leader's statement. So um, I think you're right. Uh, not coming to a consensus statement is is a challenge. It's not where we want to be. I will say, though, that um, I was at the SOM 2 meeting in Vinya del Mar in, in May this year. The ministers responsible for trade reached a consensus, a full consensus statement for the first time since 2015. I think that speaks well of momentum, which then carried on um, 
at the, the G20 ministerial um, towards coalescing around sort of core principles that, that are broadly agreed. And we're certainly hopeful the, the Chilean hosts have been putting a lot of work into building the component parts of a consensus statement, um, which is still to be negotiated, you know, that anything could happen. But, uh, you know, I would say I am um, more than cautiously optimistic that um, we're in a position to um, come to a consensus. Spoken from the government that stood in the way of the last one. No, nope, so. that was not us. <laughs> it was not us. All right. Anybody else want to, uh, anybody brave enough to ask, uh, tackle John's second question? You don't have to, but uh, okay. You lose on that one, John. Let's go here in the front row. It's what you get for getting into the weeds. Yeah. Good morning. Fascinating conversation. Thank you for the panel. Another topic, very complex topics. I go down to earth. What is the impact of labor and cost on ne any negotiation on the, in Japan, for example, they produce more, but they're more expensive than in US. So when we, what is the impact on cost, labor cost? The second question, how can small business, business export, import be involved in such a negotiation? But yeah, maybe just I think it's not all, all just a matter of the cost of the labor, but uh, I think APEC has been working, and actually it was kind of um, uh, enhancing the, the global supply chain by companies. And as you're right, so the significance of labor cost, uh, in a sense, is decreasing in this digital economy, but still, Having this kind of supply chain management, uh, that all the companies, CEOs, have to um, think about the labor cost and all other costs. So, in a sense, um, the combination of just such kind of the business judgments on costs um, in line with uh, the members, uh, the policy combination uh, will kind of lead to the, uh, the more um, effective management. And I think that APEC is providing no such kind of the, uh, uh, sound environment for that. So I think, um, in a sense, it's decreasing, but still, uh, it, it, it's still effective in the in sense of the APEX, uh, the policy provide, provision. Um, well, uh, maybe I'm being an expansive interpretation of your question, which is to say, you know, what are the real fundamental drivers of trade and how does that uh, uh, get reflected in, in negotiations. And I'm going to take that a little further, but think about how they're changing the fundamentals of trade. So, uh, you know, you begin with uh, the basic relative cost advantages and then specialization. And so you have this, you know, ideal model of, of efficient mutual trade um, on goods. And, and now we're, you know, moving to a world dominated by services and digital economy and in some sense, you know, in terms of the future, not only privacy and cybersecurity and, and free flow of, of data, these are big issues, but the, the, also a next generation issue is just the way in which digital economies blow apart the basic model of the firm and 
the sort of optimal size of a firm. You know, there are natural uh, 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 barriers that prevent firms from getting huge, and and and. Uh, uh, and so that's why you have so many firms doing so many things. But as we know, the digital world in many sectors can be a winner-take-all world in which the companies just explode in size because of network effects, and that's the positive. But the other, other issue is that all those diseconomies of scale that normally prevent companies from getting super large, as you get farther from the home office, you have less control, you can't translate, you don't know the local, all those things are getting blown apart by, by digital technology so that you can can become, you know, a monopoly of the world in your field. And so what will be left, you know, so, you know, a lot of the e-commerce discussion was about, oh, this uh, small uh, enterprise can benefit from trading around the world. Yes, that's true. And so consumers will benefit, micro businesses will benefit, but will there be any middle left, right? It's gonna, or is it just going to be a handful of giant companies? Now, all the regulations, uh, around privacy and whatever you want can stop that if we wish. It's easy to put up borders and put in rules that will prevent giant companies. And maybe that's the way we want to go. Maybe we give up too much. I don't know. But that, I think that's one of the big questions of, of our future is how do we deal with the way the digital economy is blowing apart our, our, our sense of you know, what's, a bi what's a big firm and how big do we want them to get. Okay. There's Two in the back, let's take the gentleman first, and then the, the lady second. So my question's for, uh, for the ambassador. Um, first, I appreciated that, that you threw out some, some letter grades for some specific things. And so I want to go back to your, your point on agriculture. In the uh, 2018 BOGA report, um, it said that non-agricultural industries had about, a, I think it was a 5.3% tariff, uh, with agriculture being double that. Um, and then when you look at the, at the members of APEC, you have four of the five largest importers and two of the largest exporter, uh, two of the five largest exporters of, of soybeans. Um, how, do, how does APEC address how far out of line the, the tariffs that, that remain on, on agriculture? What, how do we get from, a, a, I think you said a D minus, um, how do we get from a D minus to a C or, you know, God forbid, a, a B minus. Um, how, what's, what's the path forward to, to make those changes with agriculture? I think I'm going to uh, take the uh, option to pass that question down the, down the line here. <laughs> <laughs> Being more closely operationally involved in APEC at present than I am. Do you mind picking that up? I, I don't have a good answer for you on that. To be very honest, APEC has, over, over the course of the last year, been very, very heavily focused on digital issues. Agriculture is, of course, and trade in agriculture is you know, something that we would like to see liberalized. But at this point, the role of APEC versus the role of um, bilateral uh, agreements is, um, is unclear, and, and it looks as if the bilateral approach, at least for the U.S. government, is the preferred path forward. Okay, next to him. Chia Ching with United Danews Group Taiwan. I have two questions for Deputy Assistant Secretary. Um, the first one is, last year, uh, Vice President Pence met with the Taiwan representative, Morris Chang. Um, they talked about FTA between U.S. and Taiwan. And in your recent visit to Taiwan, have you talked to the Taiwanese government about the 
progress of FTA or how to enhance U.S.-Taiwan economic ties. Second question is, would any U.S. official meet with Morris Ching this year? Thank you. So um, to the best of my knowledge, so the FTA question is really a question that you need to direct to USTR. So USTR handles our um, bilateral trade arrangements. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there's, the, there's no FTA discussions underway. Um, but I would, if I were you, I would definitely confirm that with USTR. And on the issue of meetings um, among leaders, you know, we have not set up a schedule of bilateral meetings for leaders yet. That's all still to be determined. Um, as as um, Monica noted earlier, um, I think we're hoping there's every indication, including a statement that he made himself, that the president will um, attend a summit in Chile in November. Um, but, but there's been no announcement from the White House. Um, so we're, we're just in a wait and see mode. Okay, over here in the orange or pink, whatever. Uh... Hi, my name is Shelly Sue, and I'm with CNM International. This question is for Das Odkirk. I was wondering if you could speak to the priorities for the U.S. this year at APEC, understanding that the statements are a consensus product and you don't always get you want. Um, if the U.S. held the pen, are there any specific commitments or language that the U.S. would like to see in the statements or initiatives that the U.S. hopes to launch this year? So we're, the U.S. Uh, APEC priorities this year are very closely aligned with Chile's APEC priorities. Um, looking to make progress in the area of digital economy, of um, women in the economy, uh, looking at and very supportive of Chile's work on um, combating marine debris and combating illegal, unregistered, and unreported fishing. Um, in addition to that, uh, the, the overarching U.S. goal with regard to APEC is that APEC remain uh, closely attached to its core competency as a trade and investment liberalization organization. Um, and looking at liberalization in the areas of digital trade, of services, and then of facilitating um, greater uh, involvement of the private, more, greater, broader, enhanced involvement of the private sector in infrastructure development across the Indo-Pacific. Okay, I think we have time for one more if there is one. And there isn't one. Oh, there is one. I'm sorry. There's a familiar face. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Harding yeah. from CSIS. Um, clearly, one big thing that's changed since Bogor is the role of China in the global economy and China's weight within multilateral institutions. Maybe Richard's the best place to, to speak on this, but uh, having not being one of the three diplomats. Uh, but what role does China play these days? And is it different from the 90s? Is this a place where politics and strategic rivalry actually take a backseat towards pragmatic progress in the spirit of APEC? Or any other uh, uh, thoughts you could share on it, I think would be interesting to, to the group. I'm not, even, I'm not sure I, I fully understand the question. I mean, in terms of uh, uh, leadership in the business events I've been in ABAC, uh, China's a very active participant. Uh, they have strong views. Uh, they also, unlike the American representatives, you know, have probably implicit um, support on their, on their views from the government. So they're already a significant player uh, and, and contributing. Um, I think uh, um, 
right now, they, they, they often are going it more alone. They aren't, haven't been as uh, uh, able to you know, plan ahead to try to develop an alliance when they bring something to the table. So, so uh, they may not have been as effective as, as they will be in the future, just in terms of getting practiced. Uh, that's what I saw on the business side, but I haven't seen what's going on on, uh, on the official side. Does anybody else want to comment from the standpoint of the government-government contacts? Well, the nature of APEC in, in that uh, it's voluntary and uh, self-initiated, I think it's, I think if, yeah, it sounds funny, but if I were Chinese government, I think they are really um, feel comfortable in utilizing this APEC venue because you are not forced to or you're not compelled to do anything at, at APEC. So, but this APEC is a great venue of education, self, and uh, uh, mutual learning. I think so, if I were China, uh, I think they should, they will use uh, this as a the domestic reform within their country. Okay, anyone else want to have I the just, last word? Just to add to, uh, again, if you think about the evolution of China from when it first started to be an actor in APEC to the role that it plays in the global economy today and the way it conducts its diplomacy, I think we've observed quite a change uh, in, in style, if not in substance. And that was very much aired in the media after the last APEC leaders meeting. Right, and so I'd say this is APEC's 30th anniversary. I think it is, there's no argument that China's role in the world economy has evolved significantly over the course of the last 30 years. And as a result, China's role in APEC has also evolved. Has what? Mm. Also evolved. I would just be a panelist for a minute and say these things, having watched not only China, but other countries join organizations after their inception uh, or later, uh, there's a, tra a trajectory, and the, the first part is learning, uh, often objecting to everything, and then becoming a constructive uh, role player, and then becoming a leader. And I think we've seen that here as well as in other instances. Certainly you're seeing that in the WTO, for example. Okay, I think we've gone a little bit over time, uh, but uh, uh, please uh, thank the panel uh, for their comments. And what we will do now is uh, have a coffee break right outside uh, up the little stairway. And the next panel will convene, Brian, at what time? Or Sammy? The next panel will convene at 11.30. Please don't leave. Come back. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Panel now that is going to look at the upcoming East Asia Summit that takes place November 4th in Bangkok, Thailand. Um, and we have a panel of distinguished speakers here who will share their perspectives, uh, uh, in particular of some key countries, um, in terms of what the priorities are going to be for the East Asia Summit this year, and also um, any thoughts they have, or we can get into it in discussion, kind of the, the outlook for regional architecture based on the development of ASEAN, the East Asia Summit, uh, these other kind of regional frameworks to promote cooperation. Um, so let me start um, 
Uh, I'll introduce the panels one by one and then ask them to give a few remarks. And I'm going to start um, to my left. We have Busara Kanchanalai, mm -hmm. uh, who is the Minister and Deputy Chief of Mission for the Royal Thai Embassy here in Washington, D.C. Minister Busara was previously the Deputy Director General of the ASEAN Affairs Department at the Thai Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So, of course, Thailand is the chair this year for ASEAN. Therefore, Thailand has been hosting all of the ASEAN-related meetings, including the East Asia Summit. Um, and given uh, Minister Busara's experience working on ASEAN affairs, uh, we thought she would be a, a particular, particularly helpful guide for us to uh, share with us Thailand's perspective on how uh, it's been going as, as a host year and what to expect in November. So let me turn to you first. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning. Thank you, Amy, for your kind introduction. Uh, the turn of ASEAN chairmanship uh, comes back to Thailand after 10 years ago. 10 years ago, uh, if you may remember, it was the time when the ASEAN Charter was just signed and came into force. So the theme for that ASEAN summit, I still recall, it was uh, ASEAN Charter for ASEAN peoples. So the priority during that time was to uh, consolidate the rules-based ASEAN. ASEAN became first time as the uh, real intergovernmental organization, having charter, having blueprint, looking forward to uh, forge integration, to forge integration in, in three pillars, uh, in terms of security or peace, in terms of economic integration, or what I can say, the, the, the ultimate goal would be for progress and prosperity. And in terms of socio-cultural pillar, that's for the peoples, peoples of ASEAN. So as time uh, gone by, uh, 10 years, we see lots of changes in international landscape, especially in the region. And to our uh, observation, the discussion and conversation in ASEAN is turning towards more and more uh, through US and China uh, perspective or, or, or discussion in terms of uh, US and China roles in the region. As we can see that as uh, time passed, there are more and more changes in the region as well, more um, more interest in the region. Mm -hmm. And there's more changes in terms of uh, technological disruption and uh, demographical uh, changes. So in this year, the theme for ASEAN Chairmanship for Thailand, uh, we emphasize us in three keywords, advancing partnership for sustainability. So advancing, it uh, simply means that we are looking forward organization, embracing uh, new innovation, technology, and uh, uh, embracing new things. Mm -hmm. Partnership, of course, uh, we are forging more, broadening uh, cooperation and cooperation and uh, uh, widening and deepening cooperation with dialogue partners and uh, and uh, external parties concerned. And 
sustainability. We are talking about sustainability of things. As the, that's for the benefits ranging for, of the peoples, not only for ASEAN, but for the region and the world. Uh, we're ranging from uh, environment, from uh, security, from development, economic and culture, and, and, and social development. Those are the, the theme behind uh, the, the basic, the, the foundation behind uh, the theme of this chairmanship of Thailand. Mm -hmm. And uh, to ensure that ASEAN is future-oriented and uh, strengthen our role as all dialogue partners, including the U.S., always mention that uh, ASEAN has central role in the regional architecture, in the new regional architecture. And as uh, this year, um, we, during the first summit in June, the ASEAN leaders adopt the thing, the, the, the paper, a small paper called ASEAN Outlook on Indo-Pacific. That's the response of ASEAN to the new initiatives, new cooperation, new ideas that coming up in the region and beyond. And uh, um, in terms of uh, the ASEAN Outlook on Indo-Pacific, may I uh, just mention just a few that it's laying background and principles for Indo-Pacific for cooperation for ASEAN, which uh, we have uh, involved the principle, for instance, respect for sovereignty, freedom of navigation, uh, open investment, and uh, of course, incorporating with the, uh, the, the principle of ASEAN, which has been uh, upheld, been upheld for a long time, I mean three M's, which are mutual respect, mutual trust, and mutual benefit that give the benefit and mutual trust and mutual cooperation, not only within ASEAN, but between ASEAN, member states of ASEAN, and uh, countries within the Indo-Pacific region. So according to the areas of cooperation that uh, the leaders identified during the summit, and uh, that, that ASEAN can cooperate, and we will cooperate. There are four key areas that are maritime cooperation, connectivity in all forms, development to achieve sustainable development goals, and economic and other cooperation. So during the East Asian Summit, this Asia Summit uh, on the 4th of November, we are looking forward that uh, the leaders will further promoting joint efforts and cooperation uh, to prepare the region to uh, address and cope with the changes and uh, the, the ongoing situation and uh, prepare for the future. So in the, in the, in, in, in the context that uh, the leaders would touch upon, for, for example, illicit drug, transnational crime, infectious disease, and on promotion, we are promoting for more on partnership for sustainability. So in terms of economic matter, the, the second pillar, we just celebrated 
10 years of cooperation between US and ASEAN in terms of uh, standardizing, upgrading the national single window. So uh, the national single window could merge and uh, work together in one as ASEAN single window. We hope that by end of this year, eight of uh, eight national single window will be fully operational and uh, would make the ASEAN single window be more effective. And uh, that will, of course, promote uh, and facilitate more trade and investment while uh, we are uh, facing meeting the new technological disruption. So to, to complement with this uh, ongoing uh, situation, ASEAN also adopt the ASEAN Master Plan on Digital Economy. So it's to prepare ASEAN to ready for, for uh, respond and also promote to the uh, digital disruption and also not only to promote but also to work on the, uh, combating cyber crime, working on promoting cyber security and also up, uh, standardizing the legal framework in terms of uh, uh, digital area. Apart from that, in terms of uh, people, we are talking about sustainability of things in terms of uh, uh, trade, uh, trade, uh, peace, and also in terms of uh, social development, in terms of uh, economic, uh, I'm sorry, uh, environment conservation. conservation. You, you, you can see that early this year, the leaders of, of ASEAN adopt a cooperation statement on the combating marine debris. Mm -hmm. We are going to uh, work forward to that goals and of course with the cooperation of uh, dialogue partners and EAS partners. Mm -hmm. uh, let me go back to economic matter before the, before the, the, the discussion started. We, we talked roughly about the RASEP or mm -hmm. Regional Economic Partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, it is expected that uh, we hope that by end of this year, the negotiation and uh, uh, the RCEP negotiation will be concluded. Last week, the trade negotiation committee just met in Thailand and they concluded uh, 14 chapters out of 20. So we remain very hopeful that by the end of this year, all the, diff all the uh, matters will be uh, concluded. And may I go back that to, to 10 years ago, it was Thailand, during, during Thailand chairmanship, that master plan on connectivity was launched. And Thailand, during the course of uh, implementing that master plan, we uh, suggested, we proposed that, Thailand proposed that the master plan on connectivity should not uh, implement, be implemented just within ASEAN. Of course, we need to forge more integration, seamless integration uh, within ASEAN member states. But of course, it's also 
a must that ASEAN must be reached out to integrate with dialogue partners. Mm -hmm. And during these past years, Thailand expand, expanded our proposal of uh, connectivity plus that was called 10 years ago to be called and to be implemented as uh, connect, uh, connectivities. And during the course of time, ASEAN started to work with the connectivity initiatives in the region and we, that, that will include the connectivities uh, which will be implemented through the BUILD Act. That's the thing that uh, we are looking forward to work with the United States and also the Indo-Pacific countries. Speaking of uh, Indo-Pacific uh, initiative, uh, by on the 4th of November, there will be another function that uh, will be held back to back with the summit which is called the Indo-Pacific Business Forum. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the private-led uh, uh, initiative, mm -hmm. which will be co-hosted and co-organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. and uh, U.S. ABC and Thai Chamber of Commerce. The idea of that sec second uh, Indo-Pacific Business Forum is to uh, would be the forum for for the private sectors and uh, of, of the people from, from Indo-Pacific Forum, from Indo-Pacific uh, region mm -hmm. to meet. We hope to have a matchmaking, match, matchmaking between the, the, the cooperation, not only between Thailand and us and, and US as co-hosts, but ASEAN member states and other Indo-Pacific countries as well. Mm -hmm. So we look forward that uh, during the upcoming ASEAN Summit, upcoming EAS, strong presence of the United States. That will be the testament of the commitment of the United States for the region. Mm -hmm. And of course, in turn, it means for the benefit mm -hmm. of the United States as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, speaking of strong commitment uh, from the United States to the region, it was notable last year that President Trump himself did not go to the mm -hmm. East Asia Summit, um, but sent Vice President Pence. And as I mentioned earlier today, we still do not know who will represent the United States at these meetings. Um, let me turn now to David Nakamura, who has traveled with President Trump and many members of his cabinet. So although we don't know who the VVIP will be, uh, you did travel with President Trump to the East Asia Summit, well, ago. the part of the East yes. Asia Summit that he managed to yes. participate in uh, in Manila yep. two years ago. Um, so let me introduce him. He is a White House reporter for the Washington Post, where he started working uh, in 1992. Oh, and so, sorry? Dating me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Long experience. Um, but anyway, so please, I think you'll be able to share with us perhaps a little bit of color yes. about how these how these trips usually go, sure. what goes on behind the scenes, and, and certainly welcome your perspective on what the key strategic priorities um, would be for the United States um, or other countries in the region sure. as you see it. Thank you, Amy, and thank you, CSIS, for this great event. Um, with the, with uh, the minister here, I did want to share one story from my trip to Thailand in 2012 with President Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, I was lucky enough to, the White House press pool is a member of 13 members of the press that gets to travel 
uh, in, the, in the airplane and in the motorcade and go to events that the rest of the press, just too many people cannot go to. And it was my day to be in the print pool, meaning the newspaper representative in this 13-member group, when uh, President Obama was going to pay respects to the Thai king, who was quite elderly at the time he died in 2016, mm -hmm. uh, very revered throughout the country. Uh, and when we got there, there was a great commotion in saying that he was at a hospital uh, and that he would, he would be able to see President Obama uh, but that they had to narrow the pool down to just three members, uh, one for the print, one for TV, and one for radio. And luckily, as the print pooler, I was selected to be in, involved in this. Uh, and we were ushered into, you know, basically a small room, in, greeting room in the hospital. Uh, and when we got in there, there were, you know, some chairs like this set up in the far, far side of the room. Uh, and the Thai king was there. Uh, and he had a guy who was sort of like an assistant on the floor with like white gloves uh, sort of tending to him. And uh, he looked very distinguished, but he wasn't really even moving. And I, I was a little uh, alarmed by you know, how well he was doing physically. I, I joked someone, you know, this is not, not to be disrespectful, a little bit of weekend at Bernie's uh, feeling about, the, about what's happening in the room. Um, and we were waiting, and we were getting, and they were saying, you know, please stay back. You know, he's not doing great, so just please stay back. And the aide was whispering to him, but I did not see a great deal of reaction. And so I wasn't sure how well he was taking in what was happening. Um, but eventually the door opened, and President Obama came in, followed by Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, on her final trip. Uh, later in this trip was their second visit to Burma, uh, the very historic moment. Um, and President Obama came in and he said, oh, uh, you know, Your Excellency, it's really nice to meet you. I bring warm welcome from the United States of America. And the king didn't, didn't really react too much. Uh, and then Hillary sort of burst through around the side and said, King, so-and-so, you know, great to see you. It's, I, you know, Bill sends his regards. You know, it's great. To, you know, I last saw you at this uh, trip that we did back in, you know, in the 90s or whatever. And, and uh, suddenly the king sort of perked up. And you could see him sort of whispering to the aides. And the aides sort of translated what he was saying. And, and he had a great reaction. And uh, that trip was very memorable for those kind of moments. Later uh, in that same trip in Burma, uh, I was standing on Aung San Suu Kyi's lawn when, uh, when Trump, uh, along with the rest of the press, when, uh, when President Obama came in with the motorcade. Uh, you guys may remember the same kind of thing happened where President uh, Obama came out and sort of bowed to Aung San Suu Kyi and they turned toward her house and then all of a sudden the door opened the other side of the limo and Kurt Campbell and Derek Mitchell, who was the ambassador, were sort of standing there with Obama and then Hillary ran and embraced Aung San Suu Kyi and, you know, with three you know, very powerful men standing around and, and it was one of my most memorable moments uh, covering uh, these foreign trips. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a great memory uh, from that visit and I uh, would love to go back uh, this year to Thailand, but uh, I don't know that we'll have the chance because we don't know, as Amy said, who is going to go from the United States and how much press attention will, will be there. Um, you know, I don't need to tell you, I'll keep it somewhat short um, and, and happy to answer questions. Um, you know, these trips are, are very interesting to sort of see how uh, the U.S., what kind of message the U.S. brings and, and who's delivering it. And uh, as Amy said, you know, I was on President Trump's trip to five countries in 2017, quite a, quite a trip. I think I hit all the countries uh, on the charter plane, and um, uh, the president was really trying to rally the region behind his North Korea strategy, as well as some trade issues. Um, the Southeast Asia part of the trip was probably more devoted to trade. The first part of the trip in Northeast Asia um, was more focused on uh, North Korea. Um, but as, you know, by the end of the trip, the president seemed to be uh, getting fatigued, and he did leave early, a day early from the East Asia summit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was noted. Uh, last year, he sent Vice President Pence. Uh, who, among other things, I think spoke uh, informally to uh, Vladimir Putin there. Uh, he also met with Aung San Suu Kyi and pressed her on the plight of the Rohingya. Um, President Trump, uh, as this room probably knows, has, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's embraced Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, Vice President Pence has, has sort of, uh, you know, uh, confronted her. Um, I don't think that President Trump has mentioned her uh, in public. I know he crossed paths with her. There's a photo 
uh, in one of their meetings, I think from 2017, where, where they were behind a curtain at some point, came out to a, a group dinner, but we don't know how much they really interacted. Um, the situation this year is not promising for uh, you know, a, a, a super high-level delegation um, to attend. I mean, um, this room is well aware of what's happening in the administration. The president's going to have a news conference in about 10 minutes uh, with the Italian uh, uh, prime minister at the White House. Um, but right now, you have a lot going on, um, aside from even the impeachment, or, or in part because of the impeachment. Um, the changes within his own staff are notable. We have a, the fourth national security advisor. We have a shakeup going on at the NSC in which uh, he has announced, Robert O'Brien, that they're going to downsize uh, by uh, up to two-thirds, I think. Uh, it's hard to know the exact count of how many work there, but there's been over 300, and now they're saying to uh, you know, just over 100 uh, when they're done some attrition, uh, which they talked to both uh, O'Brien and Matt Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, talked about last week. Um, the State Department um, is undergoing a crisis of confidence. Uh, Secretary Pompeo's top aide, one of his top aides who recently resigned, a career person, had, uh, is now on uh, the Hill today to, to speak um, and talk about um, some of the concerns uh, about the handling of the situation uh, with Ukraine. Um, and the president is, of course, distracted by impeachment and by the crisis in uh, Syria uh, that he has precipitated. And um, one of the things that's interesting about the administration that people have remarked on for two and a half years now is, you know, there's the president's sort of foreign policy, Twitter uh, foreign policy, and then there's sort of the administration's foreign policy. And sometimes they're at cross purposes or they don't sound the same. Um, you know, Matt Pottinger, as this room probably knows, um, is someone who, you know, joined the Trump administration um, right around the transition with General Flynn uh, and came into the NSC that way. And he has a very untraditional path uh, to this job. But now he's been promoted to the Deputy National Security uh, Advisor. And he said on uh, Hugh Hewitt's radio show just last week um, that the reason he was promoted, and, and, and I've heard this as well, is uh, because uh, of his experience in China, uh, his experience with China. Uh, his, he speaks Mandarin. Uh, and he helped, he helped you know, sort of pull together the national security strategy in 2017 that sort of elevates China and Russia uh, in particular as, uh, as primary um, uh, geopolitical uh, uh, foes or, you know, uh, uh, a confrontation with them. And so, you know, uh, what, they just recently also announced that Victoria Coates, another longtime NSC official who came from uh, Ted Cruz's office, uh, with more of a focus on Middle East, will also be sort of named deputy. But what I understand is that Pottinger does have the office in the, in the uh, West Wing now. He's already at work there with Robert O'Brien. Uh, and they've added her to sort of focus on some of the Middle East stuff, but to allow Pottinger to sort of focus on those strategic object, ob objectives in the national security strategy. And you know, what's interesting, I've been sort of gathering material to sort of uh, maybe write a story about, about Matt. Um, you know, and it's interesting, you know, if you talk to him, um, which some of you may have done, he talks in a way that makes you think, okay, this doesn't sound too different from some of the bipartisan sort of messages on Asia that we've heard uh, through past administrations, you know, an importance uh, of Southeast Asia in the, in the, in the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, a partnership with um, allies and how important it is to tend to allies. I think he's been very strong on China in a way this administration has signaled from pretty much from, from early uh, in the administration, they're gonna be tougher on China. That's, that is maybe a different uh, point of view. I think, you know, um, he talks about uh, TPP and not being 
you know, a major uh, disadvantage of uh, pulling out of TPP, but he has to because the boss uh, talks that way. Um, but you know, in other words, my point is that the, the, the sort of message you hear about the Asia region from you know, Vice President Pence, um, from the State Department, and from the NSC tends to sound familiar. Of course, the president is a different story. And uh, I think what you're seeing with the president is this decision on Turkey. We don't know the full story about the phone call with Erdogan. Um, but you're starting to maybe see the president move toward uh, a re-election strategy on, uh, and, and to try to align some of his promises with what, what he's actually done, achieved in office as he heads into an election year. Uh, ending these endless wars has been uh, one of the prime uh, things he's talked about on the campaign in, in, in 2016, and you're seeing now a rapid sort of decision to do this. Um, I think um, the outstanding issues on China uh, with the trade deal, I think, is probably the foremost thing we need to watch. Um, this sort of deal that was announced uh, a few days ago, um, obviously, is already sort of unraveling. Uh, and the president now, I think, is focused not so much, of course, on the East Asia Summit or ASEAN as a chance to meet Xi Jinping, but on APEC. And even though he skipped APEC last year, which was in Asia, I think it looks likely he would visit uh, APEC in Chile. Uh, and that's where he hopes to sort of have some sort of bigger uh, announcement on the trade. Um, the North Korea piece is, is up in the air. Uh, doesn't look promising. He have Iran. Um, still at play, of course, doesn't seem to be much movement there. And then you have the trade deal, the U uh, USMCA, which continues to be a priority of this administration, something they hope to be able to deliver. But it, it doesn't look likely that uh, the Democrats in the House uh, are going to find this too appealing right now as they're trying to impeach the president. So you have a president who's, who's anxious to kind of get moving on these big issues, uh, how much he's focused on, on a regional security conference like this, even though Putin and Xi are there, um, is, is somewhat doubtful, I think. Um, the, um, I think the administration, though, is, is determined to rebalance uh, you know, sort of their, their, their strategy against China. And that continues. And as I talked about, I think you have members of the administration in high levels who are continuing to push that agenda. Uh, how much the president's back and forth on the trade message plays into their overall posture, I don't know. But I think you're seeing that the, the, at something like the EAS uh, or ASEAN or other regional summits, the, you'll see members of the administration at least mouth the words and, and, and try to push uh, countries to sort of align behind the U.S. Uh, uh, priorities. And I think, you know, it's been remarked that as much as there's trade friction has grown under this administration, some of the defense and security partnerships have actually in some way strengthened, um, despite whatever um, uh, trade uh, issues are happening. And so I think that'll continue to be the message. Um, you know, I also would remark, you know, in, in East Asia just in general, uh, I wrote a story about the, the multiple sort of uh, crisis level things happening from North Korea continuing to launch more missiles, um, to the China trade deal being very uncertain. Um, and then, of course, you have the Japan-South Korea situation. This administration seems to be aligning behind Tokyo in its messaging, um, but that's is certainly unresolved, and the president himself seems to not want to you know, get involved too much in an issue that's hard to know how much effect he'd have in the first place. And then, of course, you have the situation in Hong Kong, which remains unresolved. And uh, you know, so you have a number of crises just in this region uh, that deserve attention, uh, but I think it's going to be left to Trump's deputies to sort of hash that out. Thank you. Fascinating. Um, let me turn now to Malcolm Cook. Um, he is um, a senior fellow at ISIS, which is the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, uh, not ISIS, the other group that we're all worried about today. He has not escaped from Syria. He's coming from Singapore, uh, where he's been based there uh, for several years. And he focuses on Southeast Asia's economy and regional security. He was the inaugural East Asia Program Director at the Lowy Institute in Sydney and the inaugural Dean of the School of International Studies at Flinders University of South Australia. So although Malcolm is of Canadian and now Australian um, 
uh, citizenship. Uh, he is going to provide us, he watches things very closely from Singapore from, through a regional lens. So I've asked Malcolm to provide us with a Southeast Asia perspective on this year's, you know, what's going on in the region now, what the key uh, uh, issues will be hashed out at the, at the, at the East Asia Summit, and, um, and any thoughts you have about the evolution of the architecture. Be appreciated. Thanks a lot, Amy, for the invitation. It's nice to see you in Washington for the first time after you've come to Singapore uh, many times. <laughs> Just one note, um, Xi Jinping has never attended the East Asia Summit. It's always the premier. Um, mm -hmm. So if the US president goes, the US representation at the East Asia Summit is much more significant than the People's Republic of China. And Vladimir Putin has attended one, and that's because APEC was in Port Moresby and the East Asia Summit was in Singapore. Nothing against Port Moresby, but Singapore may have a more attractive destination than Port Moresby. Um, it's unlikely that Putin will be there this year, um, and Xi Jinping certainly won't. So the criticisms that the US president doesn't show up to the EAS need to be put into context. Um, the number one in China has never gone, and the number one in Russia has gone once in 10 years. I want to talk a little bit more, taking a step back about ASEAN and major power rivalry, because now in Southeast Asia, there is a deep and deepening concern that the US-China rivalry, as noted in the um, national defense and strategic policy, is the, new, is the new normal, and where is that going to be put? And this is the first time that ASEAN, as an organization with 10 members, has been in the middle of a major power rivalry when it was first set up in 1967, it was very clear that it was on one side of the rivalry, the free or the America-lined one, and the communist states were not invited but were the enemy. This is really the first time that ASEAN and Southeast Asian countries through ASEAN have been um, facing a major power rivalry that could affect their organization. And if you look at the creation of ASEAN, but also the East Asia Summit as its kind of peak uh, regional body for its dialogue partners, and even the whole dialogue partner process, that's all about maximizing Southeast Asian states' autonomy against major powers or in relation to major powers, their voice particularly towards those major powers, and their ability to gain external support and money. So the East Asia Summit is the highest level element of the ASEAN strategy of tying major powers to Southeast Asia and to ASEAN. And it's pretty incredibly successful. So if we look at the membership criteria for the East Asia Summit, to get a ticket to be invited to this thing, and the United States, even though it's the world's most powerful country, wasn't invited in 2005. Why? Because the United States hadn't signed the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation. So to get, a to get invited to what is the top regional strategic forum, they say, always in Southeast Asia, you have to sign an ASEAN agreement. Everybody has now signed it. Papua New Guinea signed it in 1989, but nobody remembers that. Um, if you look at the agenda and the priority areas for the East Asia Summit, where the world's most powerful leaders or their second in commands come, a lot of it has to do with things like ASEAN connectivity. It's probably not a key element of the US-China strategy, and I don't think Matt Pottinger spends very much time at all thinking about ASEAN connectivity. But the United States has signed up as a dialogue partner with the other nine, or the other five that are in the East Asia Summit to supporting that. And the meeting is always in a Southeast Asian capital, 
So in two years, you're going to have the world's most powerful leaders arrive in Brunei. And some may have to stay on uh, cruise ships because there might not be enough hotel rooms in Bandar Seri Begawan to hold everybody. So they'll have cruise ships on the sides. So that's quite something. I don't think of any other organization in the world can bring so many powerful leaders to their location on their terms. If you look at the East Asia Summit, if you look at this US-China rivalry, in some senses, the East Asia Summit and the Dialogue Partner Program is a very useful moderating and prophylactic device that allows Southeast Asian leaders individually and collectively to push the US and China and China and Japan not to make ASEAN or Southeast Asia a major arena for rivalry. So we saw that last year when Li Xianglong was the chairman of ASEAN talking about, we don't want to choose. And the dot language was, China, don't make us choose on this South China Sea and BRI. ASEAN has no position on the Belt and Road Initiative. And for the United States, we don't want us to choose on things like 5G. If there wasn't an East Asia summit, the Southeast Asian leaders would have none of that ability, particularly as few of them are invited to Washington now. And there are domestic reasons, like some, while some don't want to go, including President Duterte. So if you like, I think the East Asia summit itself can, is playing a role to moderate at the moment and going into the future if this is the new normal the negative effects of US-China rivalry for Southeast Asian states. However, on the other side, the growing US-China rivalry and the fact that Southeast Asian countries are not all aligned on one side of the rivalry is slowing down and making the East Asia Summit and other parts of the ASEAN regional architecture hard to update and expand. So for example, in 2015, when Malaysia was chair, they pushed very hard to elevate the East Asia Summit. They came out with a very ambitious document saying the East Asia Summit is the most important forum, but really it could be much better resourced and much better uh, anchored. There was no movement on that at all. Two years later, when Singapore was host, what they wanted to do with the East Asia Summit was to make the working lunch more effective. So you move from we want to really live up to the rhetoric about the East Asia Summit, you see in all of the documents to make it work, down to we hope that the working lunch, we can get more out of it than we're doing. And Singapore is not an unambitious foreign policy actor, but that was their goal. You see with the ADMM Plus, another part of the architecture, the United Kingdom and other countries want to join simply the working groups to talk about things like counterterrorism. However, you now need to get the support of all of the ASEAN members and all of the participating dialogue partners for anybody to join these low-level, never-reported working groups. And not surprisingly, the People's Republic and China and Russia don't necessarily see that the UK, France, the EU or Canada joining ADMM plus working groups on any issue will be in their strategic interests. So while the East Asia Summit and ASEAN provides a uniquely effective platform for these small states, very worried about being stuck between the two whales fighting each other, the two elephants charging across the tundra, the two dragons fighting each other, um, in a way that no other regional organization does, 
the US-China rivalry and how it plays out in terms of individual Southeast Asian states taking quite different positions on that from Vietnam to Cambodia means that the future of East Asia, ASEAN-led architecture is quite limited despite desires to make it stronger given we're in a more contested world. The very fact we're in a more contested world means that's unlikely to happen. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, really helpful overview. One country that has not been named yet is India. And one of the unique features of the East Asia Summit is that it includes India as part of this ASEAN-centered architecture, whereas earlier today we were talking about APEC. India is not a member of APEC. Um, but the East Asia Summit provides a venue for India and its rising aspirations to be a really active player in, uh, in the region, in the Indo-Pacific, in East Asia. It gives India a venue to engage at a leader level. Um, so uh, we're thrilled here to have today someone from India, uh, Dhruva Jaishankar, um, who is the director of the new US initiative at the Observer Research Foundation and a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. So Dhruva is now resident in Washington, D.C. because he is opening up this uh, satellite of ORF um, from Delhi. Um, he was previously a fellow in foreign policy studies at Brookings Institution and the German Marshall Fund. And uh, Dhruva works a lot on regional issues, uh, regional security and other things, and is a very well-known commentator and writer and researcher uh, analyst on these, on these issues. So thrilled to have you here, Dhruva, to Washington in general, and um, happy you could join us today and welcome your, your observations. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Amy and thanks to CSIS for having me, and it's uh, great to be uh, you know, following up such, such uh, uh, great speakers uh, before this. Um, you know, since this is the Asian Architecture Conference, I thought I'd just take a quick step back and just talk about the evolution of, in, of, of Asian architecture, at least from an Indian point of view. Um, and I, in some ways, it does have a little bit of applicability to some of the other changes taking place, including for Southeast Asia, for China, for the United States, and others. Um, I think Indian engagement with this broader region can really be divided into a few phases. One was between 1947, when India became independent, and 1962. And I think it's interesting to look back at, at, at this time period, because uh, partly by default, India found itself a sort of unexpected leader in Asia in 1947. This is a time when China was still in the middle of a civil war, where Japan was still recovering from World War II, where Korea was divided, where Southeast Asia was still struggling for independence, so many of the states were. And so in, in 1947, actually, India hosted a conference called the Asian Relations Conference, which had uh, delegates from across the region, from Australia and New Zealand to Turkey, uh, from China, uh, Tibet, Japan. Um, and a great effort was made to bring delegates from Myanmar, from Burma at the time, Aung San uh, was involved in organizing this conference, um, from Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh sent representative, um, and from Indonesia, amongst other places. And this is a period in the, in the years that followed where India played quite an active diplomatic role. It was the intermediary between the US and the People's Republic of China before in the run-up to the Korean War uh, because they didn't have diplomatic relations. It brought China in from the cold at the Bandung Conference in 1955 uh, over the opposition of the host Indonesia. Um, it signed a separate peace treaty with Japan because it felt the, the peace treaty was unf unfair uh, and was in fact the first recipient of yen-denominated or uh, ODA, uh, in, because many countries were still chafing from Japan's wartime atrocities. Uh, India helped ensure, ensure that Laos remained uh, neutral during the 1955 peace talks. So you see a very active 
Indian presence there that came to a pretty sudden and, and, and cataclysmic end in 1962 uh, when India and China fought a border war, which India came out very much on the losing side of. Uh, this coinc coincided in some ways with a downturn to the Indian economy. And what happened in the interim period, the second phase, if you will, from 1962 to roughly 1991, 92, was really an India that, that sort of stepped, stepped back from the region, uh, that didn't play a very active role in, in what we would now consider the Indo-Pacific, but the broader Asia-Pacific in East Asia and Southeast Asia, um, partly because it did not have to, partly because it was preoccupied uh, with uh, uh, concerns closer to home. And in this period, we saw first the rise of the re-rise of Japan in the 1964 Olympics. We saw the rise of the other Asian tigers, and ultimately after Deng Xiaoping's reforms in 1979-1980, the, the, the rise of the People's Republic of China. Uh, and in this sort of India kind of missed the boat. Uh, so after 1992, the end of the Cold War, um, the uh, liberalization of the Indian economy in 1991, you start seeing a re-engagement of India with the region. Uh, and initi initially, this is economic. In, in uh, 92, India uh, becomes a dialogue partner with ASEAN. We just celebrated a couple of years ago, 25 years of uh, India the India-ASEAN uh, relationship. Um, but uh, you also see um, you know, Japan increasing its assistance to, to India. China-India trade going from zero to 70 billion in, in a little over a decade. Um, Korean companies coming into India in a big way. Um, relations with Australia taking off and so forth. So in some ways, we're, in the, we're sort of at the cusp of, at the end of a sort of third phase of Indian re-engagement that has been driven primarily by economics and trade. Uh, in this time period, India signed trade agreements with Japan, Korea, and, and ASEAN. Um, now, we're, I think, at a cusp where, of uh, where a point where the three other factors that are now playing a major role uh, and are sh reshaping the region. Uh, the first is the rise <coughs> of China and the manner of that rise. Uh, and the activity that we are now seeing by China uh, as far afield as East Africa, uh, the Indian Ocean certainly, uh, playing a major role uh, not just in the economics but the, the, the politics now of many countries in the region, all the way to the South Pacific. And this is a reality that the entire region is coming to terms with, uh, including India. Uh, so that in, in some ways this predates the announcement of the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. This is really a product of China's going out policy that started roughly 2001, uh, 2000, 2001. Um, the second sort of broad trend we're seeing is um, stresses on existing institutions. And we had some discussion of it this morning about APEC. Uh, but in some ways, these institutions, regional institutions that were designed with another purpose in mind, another time period, another context, are now facing different kinds of stresses. And at least for the ASEAN-led ones, uh, the fact that in this part of the world, uh, it is really the smaller powers, the 10 Southeast Asian countries, uh, that ha are leading the, institutional the, the, the evolution of institutional architecture, rather than the main powers, the major powers, uh, is quite unusual. And it came up in a certain set of circumstances that, that Malcolm alluded to, of a period when the US was somewhat withdrawn after Vietnam, uh, where the Soviet Union had its own troubles, and certainly after the collapse in 1991, where China was not, you know, certainly under Deng Xiaoping after the, the war with Vietnam, was not playing as active a role in the region. And so in this, it was in this vacuum that ASEAN really grew and thrived and, 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 and took on the role uh, that it now has. But the reality today is very different. We have China playing a more active role, the US playing a more active role, um, Russia in its own way, India, Australia, uh, and, and many others. Uh, Japan, I should say, as well. Um, so uh, this, I think, is the second sort of reality. 
The third, I would say, is to a lesser degree, not, it's, China's rise is not just happening in a vacuum, but countries like India are playing a more active role. Uh, Japan is too on the military side, uh, Australia is, uh, and, and many others. And so these three factors, I think, today are changing the context that we have grown accustomed to when it comes to uh, the East Asia Summit as, as the main uh, actor here. Um, for India, this has also required a new vocabulary. So from a, what was called the Look East policy, which had a largely economic focus, it has shifted now to what, what rhetorically is called the Act East policy, which really signals a bigger security focus, um, a wider scope to cover the, the entire Indo-Pacific region, um, so now India talks about a free, open, and inclusive Indo-Pacific, uh, mirroring the language that the US and Japan and others use. And it also signals a greater urgency that, that these are, it's not just about looking, you have to be somewhat proactive in engaging with this region. Uh, and the East Asia Summit has emerged for India and for many other countries as the, the apex summit uh, where the main, uh, uh, the main protagonists in the region are all assembled at least once a year. Um, for India, in, in reality today, the, the Act East policy, I, I would argue, has four broad elements. Uh, one is increased maritime security and governance with a focus on the Indian Ocean and with a, a secondary uh, uh, emphasis on the intermediary waters but that include Southeast Asia, the Malacca Straits, up to the Straits of Taiwan. Um, second is the integration with Southeast Asia. Uh, you see it particularly on the security side, uh, but also slowly on trade, economic, and social people-to-people uh, -people exchanges. A third is deepening partnerships with like-minded powers led by the United States, but also including Japan, Australia, um, uh, France, and others. And finally, managing relations with China, uh, with which India has a number of differences. And we saw this recently, just a few days ago, when uh, Xi Jinping came to India for an informal two-day summit uh, with Prime Minister Modi. Um, of course, India faces its challenges, and uh, I would say the, the, the big ones are its own security uh, capabilities and, and capacities. Right now, India is doing a lot more than it was doing 10 years ago, but it's sort of stretched at the seams, and its system needs to be able to, to, play, a, to play a bigger role. It will obviously need to improve its capabilities. Um, a second is integrating its trade and, and security priorities, and this is not an unfamiliar subject. Uh, I think Matt Pottinger is perhaps wrestling with the same issue here, which is you have uh, economic and trade prerogatives, which have a very strong domestic uh, uh, constituency, and uh, security, uh, a security strategy, which in some ways is easier for a government, a, f a federal government, to execute. Uh, and finally, there are some issues on the trade and, and connectivity side that, that largely for uh, domestic reasons are not able to, um, to be realized very quickly. Um, so India does face a number of challenges in terms of uh, engaging uh, with this region, but we are seeing now a number of developments uh, that I think are worth noting. I mean, the India-China informal summit being one in terms of managing the differences uh, between the two. Uh, the Quad, the, that is a US-India-Australia-Japan uh, US dialogue has been elevated to a foreign minister's dialogue. They just met for the first time on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. Um, and I, I would say but more interesting in some ways is the way uh, now India, amongst other countries, is now using its overseas assistance. Uh, it has now extended uh, considerably, obviously not on the same scale as China, uh, but you see particularly in South Asia and extending into now Southeast Asia, the CMLV countries, uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar, you see India now extending lines of credit uh, in a way that it wasn't able to do a decade or two ago. Um, and, and security assistance. Uh, so you see countries from Vietnam and Indonesia now looking to India to provide coastal radar, to provide training for submarine pilots and uh, submarine sailors and, and combat aircraft pilots, 
to see uh, um, uh, the Myanmar military now sends uh, officers to India for, uh, to discuss civil military relations is something they're working through. Uh, so this is the kind of engagement that we're now seeing that is, is really quite new and quite different. And, and, and which in some ways um, at the sort of working level embodies the kind of commitment India has to this, uh, to this extended region. Thank you very much. Um, Dhruva, there's been some um, um, speculation in the news that um, RCEP may be, RCEP is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that includes um, all of the members of the East Asia Summit minus the United States and Russia, um, but it certainly includes India, Australia, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, uh, as well as all of ASEAN, China. Um, so, uh, but, but as we know, India has been one of the largest, if not the major stumbling block to concluding a deal. And you alluded to the domestic difficulties that Prime Minister Modi faces yep. on trade. But um, there seems to be some degree of optimism, although we've seen this movie before. <laughs> it never seems to cross the finish line. But we are hearing again that RCEP may cross the finish line by the time of the November summit. Um, what, can you share with us your perspective on is this is this likely is is it, is it you, do you think it is feasible possible that India will be able to move enough on RCEP that the other countries will yeah. meet it halfway and close the deal and 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 how important is it for sure. for India? Um, so I'd say it's very important, um, but India has a major dilemma on its hands when it comes to RCEP. Uh, the strategic logic for it is very sound. India wants to be part of a, what could be the building block for a next generation of trade deals in, in the region. Um, if it is not part of it, it will obviously be a big blow to its, its, uh, its uh, ability to play a, a, a more active role in a broader region. Uh, but I think, uh, let, me, let me just spell out what I think are some of the, the, the problems. Um, RCEP is ultimately about goods trade. And this is not an area where India has, is comp currently very um, competitive. Um, it doesn't really export much beyond some raw materials and some low, low value added uh, uh, manufactured goods to the broader region. In fact, it, is, it has a large trade deficit with every other uh, member of, of, uh, of, of the RCEP negotiations. Initially, India tried to push for more on services and more on labor mobility, but that has faced resistance from uh, several of the other countries for, for their own domestic reasons, you know, from the Philippines on, on some issues, and Malaysia, Singapore on some issues. Um, and so India's had to sort of settle for, for far less on, on those fronts. Um, the second thing is India already has trade agreements with Japan, South Korea, and, and ASEAN. So the, really the new uh, additions are, are China, uh, that, that come with RCEP for, from India's point of view, are China, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, and with China, the, the biggest concerns relate to China. Uh, where India has a trade deficit currently at $53 billion. It's come down from over $60 billion. And to put that in perspective, that's about the same as India's total defense budget. Uh, so India effectively is paying China every year the same as uh, uh, it spends on, on the entirety of its defense. Um, the, the concerns are that if, if RCEP goes forward in its current form, that that trade deficit will only balloon further. Um, and so if there are carve-outs that India can make vis-a-vis -vis China, mm -hmm. that would make it easier for India to, to, to uh, join RCEP. Mm -hmm. This has come to some degree uh, at a cost of relations with Australia and New Zealand because we tried to find some creative ways that would have unfortunately affected Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, so I, I think so, some, some solution needs to be found in that space. But broadly speaking, um, I think it's very important because if India can't be part of RCEP, it really means it can't really, really be part of any more um, 
uh, high quality trade agreement with not just these countries but any country in the you know, on the docket is, mm -hmm. for example, in, in India, EU uh, free trade agreement, which would be much more difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, but if India can't get RCEP done, it can, certainly can get, get this done. So I, I would, in summary, I would say I am cautiously optimistic that I think mm -hmm. a solution can be found, mm -hmm. particularly if India's concerns vis-a-vis -vis China can be met. Mm. Um, I want to turn to Minister Bunsara also on RCEP to ask um, uh, why, if, 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 if there is another impasse, uh, if India is not willing to, to move forward enough to satisfy the other countries, um, would ASEAN consider kicking India out of RCEP? In other words, ASEAN drives negotiations. It's often reported as a China-led trade deal, but it's ASEAN-led. ASEAN negotiates as a bloc and, and sets the, the, the rules of the negotiations. Um, do you think it could come to that? I'm not involved in the trade negotiation committee, but uh, in my own opinion, it would be the last resort. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would be a last resort. So it would take many years from now before that would happen, um, think? It started, if I'm not mistaken, RCEP started negotiation in 2012, mm -hmm. right? And it, it, uh, it uh, we have to admit one thing that uh, uh, all six countries, uh, they are different level, mm -hmm. and uh, some countries, they, uh, some countries don't have uh, bilateral FDA. Mm -hmm. Some countries has as block as ASEAN and India, ASEAN and Japan, ASEAN and China, mm -hmm. but uh, the, that not not there's there's, there's there, there I have to commend. Uh, the negotiation committee because they have to go through each different label of uh, of uh, FTA of each uh, countries of each uh, partners to come up with at most uh, comfort level mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I informed, as I told earlier, kicking out some countries from ASEP negotiation would be the last resort. There are so many. Um, of course, there are so many uh, comments mm -hmm. from uh, private sectors, mm -hmm. not from Thailand, but from many countries, to uh, opt out. Some countries or ASEP minus X minus mm -hmm. XX something like that. But but uh, as far as I know, there there would not touch upon this. Of course, this is relevant to the earlier discussion we had about APEC because India has very much wanted to be part of APEC, and the reason why many countries, including the United States, has been very hesitant is precisely the dynamic that we see in RCEP, although RCEP is a trade negotiation that's a little more binding and different from uh, APEC, but it does show the difficulty that India has in engaging in these liberalization discussions. Malcolm, you wanted to jump in here. I think there's a strategic point. So I think it was 16 or 17 months ago I got called to a, a lunch with some countries that are involved in the RCEP negotiations and they floated the idea that if RCEP isn't finished this year that an ASEAN plus three not subs not replacement mm. concurrent track may be started and since they've already made lots of agreements already that that could be so you don't kill RCEP you know, don't throw the Indians and the Australians and New Zealanders out you keep it going but at the same time you start a new track and from what I hear, the People's Republic of China, which has always been favorable to an ASEAN plus three East Asia only approach, mm -hmm. has been pushing this. 
and the Japanese in particular have been slamming the door on this. Um, but if RCEP isn't concluded this year, that becomes harder to keep doing. Although the current status of Japan ROK relations may put a break on that idea, but that, that's, that is very interesting. And that would be a big blow to Australia and yes. New Zealand, I think. Um, David, let me turn to you. Um, what would be, uh, since you're our, our, our news, our media representative, um, uh, what, would, what might come out of these meetings, this summit, that would be real headline-breaking news? I mean, what would you be looking for that would be most notable or interesting for your, for your readership? I mean, given that APEC is, is right on the heels of this, and if the president is planning to go down and deal with trade, um, and maybe even you know, see Xi Jinping and Putin, uh, it's hard to know if those kind of issues would be, you know, sort of um, break through um, what's happening back here. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, if you look at uh, Vice President Pence's visit last year mm -hmm. uh, to this, this summit, and APEC was, was part of it, um, I, you know, his, I mean, I do remember his meetings with Aung San Suu Kyi uh, breaking out a little bit because that was something the administration had not verbalized, um, you know, sort of speaking on human rights um, and the Rohingya. Um, you know, I, I feel like um, in this case, it would be, it would probably be um, something along the lines of, I mean, the North Korea issue is, it seems to be a little bit, you know, uh, stalled, to mm -hmm. say the least. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you know, I mean, they could go over and sort of, I think, maybe put pressure on the other countries um, in a way that sort of pressures China. I mean, that, that's probably the mm -hmm. only thing I could think of. Mm -hmm. Um, that comes to mind that would sort of break through what's happening back here. But the president tends to drive the message. And, you know, Pence is a reliable um, sort of voice for uh, a sort of a, a calming voice um, mm -hmm. that speaks the language of sort of the past uh, administrations um, and sort of tries to calm folks from, you know, the president's Twitter feed. Uh, but I think countries by now are sort of used to uh, mm -hmm. the fact that unless the president sort of says it, you know, what, is it, what does it add up to? Mm -hmm. And, and Malcolm, I wanted to ask you uh, a, a different question, which was um, how, how has the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States, how has that, uh, as, as it's unfolded, President Trump announced it at APEC in Da Nang in 2017, um, laid out this strategy. There's been two years of some degree of fleshing it out with some initiatives. Um, in the midst of this sharpening strategic uh, competition between the United States and China. So how has the free and open Indo-Pacific resonated in Southeast Asia? And uh, are there, do you think there's any opportunity here for whoever the United States VVIP is who, who attends these summits um, to, to, uh, to, to reinforce the, the messaging that this is a um, this is a core priority for the United States, and the United States is adorable and engaged yeah. leader in the region. Um, so four points that make up a partial answer. So the beginning of the free and open Indo-Pacific, in terms of at least strategic communication, worked quite badly. So the Southeast Asian responses, mm -hmm. including from some countries in Southeast Asia that have long been quite closely aligned with the United States, was quite ambivalent. And there was kind of two reasons. One, Southeast Asian countries have a neurologic fear of anything with a regional title that doesn't come from themselves. So Kevin Rudd suffered this in 2008 when he came out with an Asia-Pacific community idea that led to an 
coordinated ASEAN assault against it that sunk it. So the fact that you had Japan and then Australia and then the United States talking about this new regional idea created that fear. So the first one was a knee-jerk defensive. Mm -hmm. It then got caught up a little bit in this same timing as the reestablishment at a senior official level of the Quad meeting. Mm -hmm. So that was seen to be, oh, this could be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Second, I think all Southeast Asian countries, and I would say all, I know that's a risk of generalization, want the United States, as the congressman said earlier, to be there and want the United States to increase their presence mm -hmm. across pretty much all fronts, maybe except on human rights and democracy. Um, but they don't want it to be done in a way that forces Southeast Asian countries to have to even be seen to be taking a position in the US against China. And China, of course, plays this by saying, if you sign up with anything talked about in the US, you are obviously against us. So they're stuck in this thing of, we want more US, but we don't want it to be phrased in a way that forces us to make a choice. Mm -hmm. I think that was the other kind of worry connected to the quad timing. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that the ASEAN leaders or Southeast Asian leaders came out with an ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific is a sign that now there is growing acceptance of this idea and the need for Southeast Asian states not just to push it away mm -hmm. or say it's not from us so we don't like it, but to engage uh, with it. So mm -hmm. tough start, getting better. And the last point is, I do think, and again, this could be because I live in Singapore and Singapore is very good at, at messaging. There is a appreciation among many Southeast Asian countries, if not all, all, for the United States taking a more forward-leaning position against Chinese behaviors, not China, Chinese behaviors that cause deep mm -hmm. concern for the United States and Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So that's one area where the Trump administration and the free and open Indo-Pacific have an advantage over mm -hmm. the Obama administration mm -hmm. and the rebalance. There is an appetite in Southeast Asia for others to take a more forward-leaning position on Chinese behaviors, but not ask Southeast Asian countries to join them. Very good. Okay, we have about 10 minutes for questions. I'm gonna ask first, we're gonna lose Dhruva um, in just a, a, a couple of minutes. So if, does anyone have a question for Dhruva Jaishankar to, uh, to start our question? Uh, back here, this gentleman? And then I'll let you go. Thank you. <laughs> so you can be brief in your answer if you need My name is Walter Jurassic. I'd like to ask you the question, the gentleman from India, and follow up. What is, what is the deficit between, trade deficit between China and India, and why India could not and still cannot compete with India? What is the reason they are neighbors and why they cannot compete? Now to the journalist over here, Washington Post. You probably traveled to China, have you? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, for years I observed, for many, many years, and I talked to Chinese businessmen, and they say, why do you have the deficit? What's wrong with this? I want to sell something you only to you, but you never you only sell to me. Bye, bye, bye. So I say, in the United States, what do you do? It? I say, yeah, because we're dealing, we allow it, the corporate as well as the politician, to be naive, so we sell at them because they don't say nothing. So we sell more, more, more. That was the trade deal with the China. Thank you. Yeah, so a quick thing on, on India. So it's, uh, the trade deficit this year is $53 billion in China's favor uh, with India. It has come down. It was over $60 billion last year. 
um, the uh, two-way trade has come down as part of a sort of global trend. Now, India has a few, particularly in manufacturing, India is really at a bit of a disadvantage for a few reasons. Some of them, a lot of them self-imposed, a lot of them structural. Uh, but broadly speaking, it has to do with the fact that the state government doesn't provide large-scale subsidies to Indian corporations. So you don't have a large, uh, with, with the exception of a few sectors like um, oil and gas and, and, and a few other areas, that you don't really have large state-owned enterprises. Second, um, you have you know, uh, quite a lot of state autonomy. So um, in, instead of a sort of centrally uh, you know, a government that's very powerful and you know, in charge, state governments actually uh, have more control over the local economy. Um, and you do see some states, so the, particularly the southern and western states of India, are actually quite competitive in some areas. Uh, say auto parts where, where in, in the state of Tamil Nadu. But, um, but basically, uh, it, uh, uh, other states are, are certainly lagging behind. Um, India also has very onerous law and labor, uh, I'm sorry, land acquisition and labor uh, laws, which make it very difficult for major co corporations to set up shop there, particularly manufacturing. And again, in the services area, it's actually been easier because the, these issues are not, um, uh, are not that competitive. So today, pretty much every five, Fortune 500 company uh, in the U.S. has some kind of presence today, or you often R&D presence in India. Um, if you look at the, the, the new technology spheres, largest number of Facebook users in the world are in India, the second largest number of Amazon users are in India after the United States. And in, in India, unfortunately, that has now shifted the argument in some ways by saying, perhaps India should start rep replicating what China is doing. Perhaps in, India should actually be raising barriers to some of these tech companies and creating national champions of its, of its own. And that's going to put, if that does happen, uh, that's going to put India further at odds with the United States, with Western companies, and with others, uh, including Japan, on, on, on some of these issues, um, uh, on, on, on the next generation of trade, trade talks and, and, and cooperation. So uh, I'm not sure that that setting, uh, oftentimes the way China is held up as an example, I'm not sure that's actually going to have necessarily a positive effect for India. I, I just quickly before I go, just two seconds on, on the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, there is some expectation that there will be uh, uh, um, some announcement on the Indo-Pacific at the forthcoming East Asia Summit. Uh, and the Outlook document that ASEAN produced is one um, indicator that that might be the case, that all 10 countries have, have agreed to it. Um, Japan, Australia, India, the US, uh, to my knowledge, New Zealand, South Korea possibly, have, ha have all at least not opposed that. Uh, the only two members of the East Asia Summit that have certain reservations about this language are Russia and China. And I do believe that certain concerted efforts have been made uh, to certainly try and engage Russia and, and to some degree China as well on this. So I think something to possibly look out for mm -hmm. is whether there is some kind of agreement on, on the nomenclature and certainly what that means nor from a normative basis, which mm -hmm. has been the underpinning of the Indo-Pacific uh, language over the last few years by, by different countries. Interesting. So Thank I will, you. I will end on that note. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, David, did you want to respond? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I've, I've traveled to China with uh, President Obama and Trump and, and even Biden in 2013. I, you know, I think, um, look, the Obama administration, with their pivot to Asia, um, you know, they tried to work with this sort of frenemy relationship with Beijing. Um, I remember in 2011 on the sort of pivot to Asia trip, which was my first uh, big trip with Obama, uh, you know, the, the messaging uh, around APEC was, you know, you know Obama was going to get tough by saying, uh, uh, China need to obey the rules of the road, and that was kind of their catchphrase. Now, every now and then, uh, when I hear Biden blurt that out in one of the debates, 
because it comes to his mind, I, I sort of chuckle because it's coming. I sort of remember how they, that was sort of their, their messaging back then. But I mean, the development, you know, they took a big gamble on trying to uh, uh, work Xi Jinping as a partner in this. And, you know, Biden was sort of responsible when she was the vice premier. And then uh, Obama and the Sunnyland Summit uh, really tried to get this working relationship, but it seemed to have failed. And I think uh, most in Washington uh, see that. And the Trump, you know, Trump had his own views on trade. We all know uh, from his time as a businessman um, about Japan and others sort of taking advantage of the country. Um, you know, those are very well ingrained in him. Um, a lot of people say he doesn't have a, a great deal of political ideology, but on trade, uh, it's authentic. And so he believes this. Um, you know, when I talk to folks, even from the Obama administration, they say, look, yeah, we agree. Look, uh, it didn't work what, our strategy uh, in trying to get uh, Xi to cooperate in some of this stuff. Uh, he's turned out to be a far different leader than maybe we expected. And uh, the time is right, uh, you know, people in Washington say, for a stronger, more confrontational approach to China. The problem with Trump is he's so unpredictable. And, you know, so far on China and North Korea, he's held a, maybe a tougher line, I think, than some might have predicted. Um, there continues to be this idea that he, he needs a big deal to show that he's done one. Uh, he hasn't really gotten one yet. And, um, you know, uh, where will he go with this China uh, deal on trade? And then what does that mean for the, the, the grander China strategy? Like I said, I think most of the people that work for him have a pretty skeptical views of China. Uh, and, you know, from uh, information technology to, to his business and trade uh, practices, to, even human rights to some degree. Um, but Trump, we saw the messaging just the other day on trade, um, looking, trying to be more optimistic. Uh, you know, I suspect that that's going to crumble. Um, the question is just what are Trump's uh, political um, uh, um, you know, incentives uh, to do something here and call it a victory, um, especially if he's not getting the, you know, so something on North Korea. So that's obviously something we, we don't know, and it's, it, we have a long year ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay, other questions? Um, yes, in the back. Yes, I have a, a question that kind of addresses on multiple things that you hit on today. And um, there's a, a growing niche within the academic literature on, um, on bilateralism and, and the impacts that it's starting to have on multinational organizations or regional organizations such as ASEAN. Um, when you look at, at how uh, specifically China's picking more one-on-one -on -one agreements with Singapore, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, um, what, is, what does that say, or, or what do, do the four of you think that that says for the, the long-term viability of, of ASEAN um, and, and possibly the weakening of, of ASEAN as a regional organization due to the, the increasing reliance on bilateralism? Mm. So this is often put as a, a, a question about China's tactics, which it's long pursued to sort of uh, divide and conquer ASEAN a little bit, divide ASEAN so that there isn't a great deal of consensus and unity. Um, and this was seen most uh, visibly, I think, in 2012 when Cambodia hosted. And um, what, for the first time, ASEAN was not able to come up with a, a joint declaration um, out, of that, out of that summit. Um, let me turn to Minister Bunsara first. Um, how do you view the health of ASEAN? And when Thailand hosts ASEAN 10 years from now, mm -hmm. uh, do you expect the East Asian summit to be stronger than it is now, or more or less the same, or perhaps uh, weakened as a as a as a venue for really promoting cooperation and and, and coordination. One thing, the underlying uh, principle, uh, underlying uh, foundation of ASEAN, is that ASEAN is a core of uh, foreign policy of each member state. Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course, ASEAN has adapted to the world situation. We see, as, as uh, 
one of the starting Malcolm, right? Mm -hmm. That mentioned that uh, ASEAN started in 1967. That was uh, polarized world, but bipolar. And then ASEAN expanded, ASEAN uh, widened uh, its strategy according to the world situation, to the regional situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, to my, to my, to my uh, observation, of course, ASEAN will still be a core of uh, foreign policy of uh, each country and uh, of the region as well. The EAS, the East Asia Summit, is, um, we can see that it's another vital <coughs> uh, venue that uh, leaders can uh, work together on the thing. We started with a certain area of cooperation that we can work together. So we are optimistic that it will mm -hmm. still, it will still uh, moving on, mm -hmm. moving forward. But of course, in, the, in this, uh, world situation, there are so many distractions of uh, many leaders. And of course, at the end, <laughs> this region is one among most dynamic region in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, I'm, I'm sure that after our CEP has concluded, it will become even uh, a more venue that the more, more country would, would like to uh, uh, work with the mm -hmm. RCEP mm -hmm. framework, and uh, it could expand. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, 10 years from now, mm -hmm. when Thailand hosts again, do you think um, the East Asia Summit will be more than 18 countries? And in particular, we know, as was mentioned, uh, Malcolm mentioned, that there are some European countries um, that have been interested in, in being more engaged in the ASEAN regional architecture. If they, if they were to put a strong push forward to join or perhaps a, an EU seat, mm -hmm. um, do you think it will expand in over a decade? I cannot speak for all uh, 10 countries, but uh, there is a will from many countries to join and uh, work with ASEAN. Mm -hmm. That's a probability. Hmm. Okay. Malcolm, did you want to um, chime in on the bilateralism question? Um, yeah, kind of three points, I think that you see a move from formal global multilateralism to the WTO uh, and in some senses the OECD at a regional level and then APEC was created not to do those same things. Mm -hmm. ASEAN was created without trying to become formal like the EU. So over the last 60 years you've seen a de-institutionalization of um, re international and regional politics that this movement towards minilateralism is a part of. And ASEAN is a very formal, inclusive uh, institution. So in some senses, it's a 20th century creation, very successful, but I think moving into the 21st century, it, it'll be more challenged. Tied to that, you know, they talk about US-China rivalry and not wanting to make choices and splits if you look at the range of concerns Southeast Asian countries have with their individually with their relations with the People's Republic of China and the depth of these concerns, I think that's a much greater and more important spectrum than it is for the relationships with the United States. And without a doubt, China has forced Southeast Asian countries to make decisions that have led to disunity within ASEAN. 
-hmm. We saw that when ASEAN came out quite bravely with a joint statement on uh, relations with China that had quite a bit coverage in the South China Sea. And then somebody leaked it to the Chinese and the Chinese put pressure on. This was only two years ago. And suddenly they retracted that. Mm -hmm except the press officer of the mm -hmm. Minister of Foreign Affairs in Malaysia, who comes from Sabah, the minister at that time, <laughs> published it. So it was retracted and published at the same time. We saw the same thing with uh, ASEAN positions on the South China Sea. So ASEAN has been unable as a consensus body to even mention the 2016 arbitration tribunal ruling in favor of the Philippines, even though that ruling upholds the views of all of the claimant states in Southeast Asia in relation mm -hmm. to the nine-dash line. So it's I, international law when yeah, ASEAN purports yeah. to uphold international law. So I think it's not so much the U.S.-China rivalry that will question um, China, uh, ASEAN unity and relevance, but it's really Southeast Asian countries' relations with China. And one last note, you can see this with the current code of conduct negotiations. Mm -hmm. In 95 to 2002, it was an ASEAN China came out to be a declaration. And there was quite a bit of intra-ASEAN working together on common positions that they would then bring to China. So the ASEAN China framing was actually a relatively accurate description of what was going on. That is not the case today. So we talk about an ASEAN China code of conduct negotiations, the Chinese refer it to as an 11 country negotiation. They do not refer to it as an ASEAN China negotiation. And if you look at the single draft negotiating text that was supposed to be kept secret but was leaked probably by a Southeast Asian country that has the strongest interests uh, that might be the most opposed to those of China, it's very clear, it seems quite clear that at least at this stage, there is very little intra-ASEAN negotiations about what would be an ASEAN position mm -hmm. on the code. It's still an 11 country uh, shift. And that's quite different than 95 to 2002. Mm -hmm. When Cambodia was chair in 2002 and it was supposed to be a code of conduct, but near the end it became a mm -hmm. declaration. <laughs> um, we have time for one more question, or I will allow time for one more question if someone has one. Yes, Tom, introduce yourself, please, and ask one question. Thank you. I'm uh, Tom Reckford with the Foreign Policy Discussion Group. In 1967, when ASEAN was, was founded, uh, the five uh, leaders of, of the member countries, including Thailand, got along very well. They played golf together. Uh, they were friends. Uh, things changed over the years, but Indonesia played a vital role in the creation of, of ASEAN. Now, uh, President Jokowi doesn't seem much interested in ASEAN. Uh, and I wonder how it can progress without Indonesia vitally involved. Would anyone like to take that question? Do you, want, do you want to turn Malcolm? Oh. Okay, we'll be starting from yes. Malcolm. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, one kind of one interesting kind of side comment. You know, if you look at um, 
national political campaigns in Southeast Asia, especially presidential ones. I follow the Philippines very closely. Indonesia, I saw it a little bit in Malaysia, even though that's not presidential, parliamentary. ASEAN is never mentioned. I don't think Duterte or Jokowi, even in the kind of long speeches where they cover their whole <laughs> portfolios, right? ASEAN doesn't come up at all. Maybe that's because it's already so well ingrained and so you don't have to talk about it. I think it's more, it's largely a, a bureaucratic thing. Um, and there was that worry that when Jokowi came into power, this businessman and new style politician, he wouldn't, from what I heard, when he attended the G20 in Australia, on the second day he asked to leave and have a city tour instead because he was so fed up with the, I don't know if that's true, that's all I, that's uh, <laughs> what I heard because he's like this multilateralism, they talk, 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 what gets done. If that was his view, then the ASEAN process would even be more. Having said that, there is an argument in Indonesia that over time, the president himself and his, and his administration have realized, despite the um, eye-rolling nature of the diplomacy, the benefits to Indonesia of not, not taking ASEAN seriously. And the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific was very much driven by Thailand as chair and Indonesia, particularly Retno, who wants to keep her job as foreign minister in the cabinet reshuffle, driving that hard, reaching back to Indonesia's period under um, Hassan Wurayuda and Martina Talagawa. So I think the argument that the Indonesians make, no, we haven't forgotten about ASEAN, but it just took a while for this president, to, who's a very new style politician, to understand the benefits, I think it seems to me, of course they're going to say that, but I think they may be telling the truth as well. Do you have anything to add? Um, even though there's you no know, mentioning about ASEAN, while the leaders of uh, ASEAN member states uh, talk about region or maybe in some of the statements, but one thing is that none of the leaders of ASEAN skip the leaders' meeting. They travel and spend at least two or three days twice a year mm. attending the ASEAN meeting. And uh, mm -hmm. as for Indonesia, it's housed the ASEAN secretariat. And uh, it, uh, in, terms, in terms of uh, uh, the country benefits, uh, it creates jobs, it creates uh, mm -hmm. Uh, income to Indonesia in terms of a very own a country. And, uh, but of course, I would like to emphasize that even though there's no mentioning of the word ASEAN, but it implies in all the action of Asian mm -hmm. leaders. Well, um, thank you. Thank you all, uh, uh, panelists, for a really engaging and interesting discussion. We are now going to break for lunch, um, which you, is outside, so you can fill up your plates and grab a beverage and come back in here and eat here. Uh, we hope you will stay with us. Our next um, uh, event will be um, a keynote remarks by the president of the Asian Development Bank, um, Nikao San, and, uh, and, a, and an armchair discussion um, led by Matt Goodman. So please join me in thanking our panelists.
Okay. All right, are we on? Okay, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Uh, it's uh, delightful to see you here, and um, I know it's been a, a full day um, at this Asian Architecture Conference. I'm uh, Matthew Goodman. I hold the Simon Chair in Political Economy here at CSIS. Uh, delighted to join uh, my colleague Amy Seawright um, and other uh, colleagues in, in this annual event. Um, we're delighted to have a special uh, guest with us today who I'll introduce in one second. I want to say hello to our online audience because I know we always have a lot of people watching uh, live online as well. Uh, welcome to CSAS as well. So Takehiko Nakao is the president of the Asian Development Bank, or the ADB as it's known in the trade, uh, one of the uh, major multilateral development banks. Um, I'm sure this audience uh, needs no introduction to the ADB. Uh, but Nakao-san is an old friend. He was a finance ministry uh, official for many years, including twice in Washington. I think once before I knew you uh, when you were at the IMF, and then uh, he was the minister, uh, the financial minister at the embassy, the Japanese embassy here, uh, when we got to know each other. And our first encounter, I think, was a big argument about uh, the structural impediments initiative um, between the United States and Japan in 19, early 1990s, <laughs> and we had a very different point of view, but I always enjoyed, uh, this, from that moment, having a very frank and, and uh, honest exchange of views um, with Nakao-san. He's a very frank guy who will tell you what he thinks, um, which, is, which is wonderful. So he's been the president of the ADB since uh, April 2013. Um, and uh, he is, uh, has announced his, his uh, departure from the bank after seven years uh, in early 2020, which is a, a shame for all of us, but you know, all things uh, must pass. Um, I'm sure he's gonna go back into some kind of scholarly endeavor. He's written a bunch of books and of course many articles uh, as a um, visiting professor at the University of Tokyo and, and elsewhere. So uh, he'll make a rich contribution even after his time at the ADB. Um, what we're going to do is I will let him make a few opening remarks and then um, ask him a few questions, uh, and then I'll open it up to you to have questions. And we have, you know, almost an hour uh, total, so uh, we'll hopefully have enough time for you to ask questions, so please uh, be prepared uh, with that. But with that, Nakao-san. Thank you very much. Uh, as uh, uh, Matthew mentioned, uh, we have had a long discussions about uh, the uh, kind of uh, contributions of uh, American pressure on Ameri uh, Japanese economic policies, including uh, the financial sector policies and the macro policies. Uh, uh, there is a tendency of uh, uh, external re uh, reviewers uh, to uh, encourage the uh, Japanese government to spend more for public works and so on. But uh, in the end, I think uh, many uh, spending uh, in 1990s was not so efficient. Uh, so uh, Japan is now suffering from a very big uh, uh, debt, public debt to GDP uh, ratio. Uh, some people may say that uh, we, we are still in very low uh, inflation rate or uh, deflation, and also very low interest rate, so we don't need to worry about uh, uh, fiscal uh, uh, I mean consolidation at this moment, but I'm still worried. But anyway, uh, today I'd like to touch upon several issues. Uh, and first, uh, Asian economy, and uh, it is uh, uh, slowing down as, uh, was, uh, as is the case for the world economy, and uh, uh, main issues often discussed is uh, U.S.-China trade uh, dispute. Uh, and uh, uh, it is true that uh, Asian countries are uh, worried about uh, U.S.-China trade dispute and its uh, impact uh, 
on trade and uh, the uh, confidence of uh, the people, including consumers and uh, investors. But overall, uh, I'm always uh, emphasizing that Chinese, uh, uh, Asian economy has been very solid, uh, uh, growing uh, very uh, robustly in these uh, years, even after a global financial crisis, at the pace of 6.5% uh, to 6% per annum. Uh, if uh, we exclude uh, uh, four uh, needs countries, uh, newly industrialized uh, 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 economies uh, like uh, uh, Taipei China, what do we call Taipei China is uh, Taiwan, Taipei China, Hong Kong China, uh, Singapore and Korea. If uh, we exclude uh, these already developed countries, uh, uh, Asia is still growing at the pace, uh, Asian developing countries are still growing at the pace of 6% uh, this year according to our uh, estimate, ADB's uh, uh, forecast and according to IMF it is 5.9%. So if we can grow at the pace of 6% uh, annually, it means but, uh, that in 12 years, the economy uh, becomes double in real time. So it's not so bad. And uh, if uh, I look at the countries uh, like um, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and uh, uh, Bangladesh, they are growing a very uh, robust uh, pace. Uh, I see leaders of... Uh, this economy and uh, Prime Minister Modi is so keen about uh, investing in the water system and uh, the connectivity with, uh, within countries and uh, they change the uh, tax system from uh, state-based uh, <coughs> uh, uh, indirect tax to value-added tax, which is uh, national. So he's so keen about uh, making uh, India as a kind of uh, the uh, integrated economy, uh, integrated economic system, so that they can trade with other countries more, uh, uh, more seriously. And uh, uh, he's trying to change uh, labor law and uh, uh, land acquisition system and uh, education systems. And now he's uh, focused on many uh, issues, including uh, water supply. He started from sanitation, and if there is no toilet. Uh, uh, girls' students have uh, difficulties of going to school, so he uh, was uh, <laughs> discussing those issues before, and now he's focusing how to use water, how to uh, supply uh, drinkable water to uh, families, and also how to use the water more uh, wiser way, including drip irrigation system for agriculture. <coughs> uh, President uh, Duterte of Philippines, he's not very popular especially to international media because of his approach to drug dealers. But he has a very high rate of uh, support uh, in the countries of uh, 80 to 90 percent because uh, many people regard him as a leader who has the guts to do things, uh, including uh, drug dealers' issues because drug is such a serious issue and many Filipino people want to uh, address that issues. Of course, uh, the way he is doing can be uh, can be subject to concern. But uh, many people want to solve this issue, and also he invest, uh, is promoting investment in the countries and rural development, uh, including in Mindanao, and also women's education. He he is so worried about uh, premature. Uh, pregnancy of uh, women students, which uh, in a sense takes away the opportunity of uh, education for many uh, women. Uh, <coughs> and he's uh, in that regard uh, 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 criticizing uh, the Christian 
Christianity, Catholic uh, churches of uh, the countries because of a very rigorous attitude of uh, the uh, uh, kind of uh, the reproduction health uh, uh, issues. Uh, and uh, his, uh, his uh, cabinet is uh, very uh, talented uh, people. Is, uh, there are so many uh, talented, enthusiastic people. He's not from elite class of uh, former sugar plantation uh, owners. Most of our previous uh, leaders of the Philippines are from those families, but he's from an ordinary family, although his father and he himself is a prosecutor, a lawyer. So not uh, totally poor, but not from privileged class. The Prime Minister Modi is the same. He's uh, from uh, sugar, uh, I mean, tea, tea seller. And uh, uh, President Widodo is also a uh, furniture maker. And he has also got to do things. Uh, I don't know whether it is a really good idea to move uh, capital from Jakarta to uh, the other island. But uh, uh, he, he has a lot of ideas about how to invest in the infrastructure, how to invest in the people. So these countries are guided by, led by very strong leaders. And uh, uh, I wouldn't say <laughs> these countries are becoming less democratic uh, because uh, those countries also have achieved uh, democracy uh, by uh, taking a lot of time, and they are independent from uh, influence of uh, other countries. So there is a discussion whether these are uh, <laughs> Southeast Asian countries, because today's uh, theme is uh, APEC and the East Asia Summit. So core of uh, these uh, frameworks are ASEAN, and ASEAN 10 is a core. Uh, but uh, in these countries, uh, democracy and the independence uh, value they have uh, 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 gained after the independence or after the fight for democracy. So, uh, of course, uh, those are influenced by the ideas of uh, bigger countries, but uh, they uh, have their ideas of their own. And uh, they are growing based on domestic consumptions uh, in addition to trade. So in case of Vietnam, for instance, uh, they are gaining uh, because of trade dispute there is a huge investment from China's and other countries in lieu of China. So it is true that uh, uh, Vietnam is uh, uh, getting a gain from a trade dispute in that respect. But uh, uh, I met uh, the uh, very senior uh, Politburo member in Europe uh, uh, quite recently, and uh, uh, he said uh, <coughs> it's, a sh uh, it's good uh, for Vietnam for short term but for longer term, uh, the uh, uh, kind of uh, disruptions of, or weakening of uh, value chain system, supply chain in East Asia, including Vietnam and China and Japan and Korea and so on, is uh, negative. So uh, even if uh, it looks a uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, opportunistic gain to uh, Vietnam for some time, it's not good for long term future of uh, Vietnam as well as Asia. I think uh, this is very common sense idea, isn't it? Uh, uh, but at this moment, uh, it is gaining from uh, relocation of factories to, from China to Vietnam. But uh, at least uh, if uh, China's uh, domestic demand is weakening because of U.S.-China uh, uh, trade dispute, uh, uh, it would uh, uh, make uh, Vietnam and other countries in Asia affected. <coughs> Uh, China itself is a uh, uh, very difficult situation uh, because there are many issues in geopolitical issues, including uh, or 
uh, political issues in Hong Kong and Xinjiang and so on, in addition to trade issues and rivalry of uh, uh, hegemony of uh, technologies and so on. Uh, about two years ago, I had a chance to talk with a very senior official of China about uh, manufacturing 2025. And I mentioned to him that uh, I have two concerns. One is uh, uh, China's growth uh, since uh, 1976 or 78, according to the different ways of uh, looking at. Anyway, in late 1970s, uh, after Cultural Revolution, they started opening up and reforms. And the essence of a success was uh, to learn from others. And uh, uh, Mr. Shang uh, Jiaoping visited the Panasonic uh, factory in Osaka and uh, took uh, the uh, train, the high-speed train. And he was so shocked by looking at the difference of technology between China and uh, and uh, Japan, and he was also uh, visiting uh, the United States and so uh, uh, impressed by the uh, development of the U.S. And they imported, uh, they learned a lot, and uh, the World Bank once uh, uh, hosted uh, the uh, 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 kind of a seminar for macroeconomic <coughs> management on the river of uh, Yangtze River, or, uh, yeah, I think it is Yangtze River, not Yellow River. A three day or four day trip. Uh, and during the trip, uh, they studied how to uh, use um, a market for economic development. So, uh, the idea of uh, China's to grow is uh, how to incentivize uh, people to work harder, to be more innovative. So, uh, according to that official who I met two years ago, in the previous uh, meeting, he said that uh, although China is regarded a uh, state-guided uh, growth model, uh, in, in reality, it is <laughs> like uh, people's movement, people's move, people's, of mo pe pe people's mobilization. Uh, people's incentives are mobilized to do things uh, like uh, growth and uh, innovations. But uh, today, uh, after the uh, third uh, uh, plenum of uh, the Central Committee of the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party in 2013. I became president of ADB in 2013, and uh, in that fall, uh, there was a third plenum of uh, a Central uh, Committee of uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party. And they mentioned clearly that the market uh, plays a cru critical role, a crucial role of uh, resource allocation. And many people were encouraged by that statement. But uh, uh, since then, <laughs> uh, in later years, it is becoming more clear that, that the party's role in companies, in states, I mean, the government and the party uh, separation is now blood, and also the uh, 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 Xi Jinping's uh, term is now extended. And, uh, so, uh, and also uh, the companies, uh, and the academic uh, world are more influenced by the party uh, guidance. Uh, it is clearly stated in many documents uh, that the party has a primary role in any aspect of, <coughs> of uh, the uh, uh, activities in China. So uh, I, I, about uh, manufacturing 2025, I mentioned two concerns. One is uh, China's growth was more dependent on the market and the people's incentive. If the party becomes stronger, 
is, wouldn't it uh, uh, negatively impact uh, the efficiency? And another concern I mentioned is uh, by doing that, uh, countries outside China start worrying about uh, China's development, whether it is, uh, in a sense, uh, taking advantage of uh, state leadership to grow further. Because uh, there is a, a WTO rule about uh, the procurement and the subsidies and so on. So if uh, China uh, tries to uh, target certain industries to rival uh, the United States uh, or others uh, by uh, state uh, power, it is regarded uh, unfair also. Uh, in two fronts, I think uh, uh, that person was not uh, really expecting uh, my questions. Uh, because uh, to, to my eye, <laughs> Uh, the China regards itself as a developing country, tries to uh, explain China as a developing country and uh, their support to other countries, uh, Belt and Road Initiative and so on, can be regarded as a South-South cooperation instead of a ODA from developed countries to developing countries. And also they regard uh, their kind of state-guided, uh, uh, state-supported uh, uh, economic policies or technology progress as a uh, Natural, uh, a natural right uh, for developing countries to grow further. But from the outside viewers, of course, uh, there is an overestimate of uh, technologies of China. But at the same time, China, has, uh, China is already in a uh, uh, front-runner uh, uh, front, uh, uh, in some uh, industries, and uh, they are already sending uh, sat uh, satellite uh, 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 behind the moon, and uh, they have a lot of uh, military powers. And uh, because of uh, big data, AI and others, uh, in a sense, uh, China has an uh, advantage of uh, 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 nurturing such an industry using uh, data in medical industry, in education industries, and in other uh, areas. So although China wants to look at itself as a developing country and it can grow further until 2050, until uh, it can become as strong as the United States, other countries are already starting worrying about China as a big power, big hegemon, which has a power to influence other countries. So that gap of uh, perception <coughs> between themselves and outsiders uh, is one of a crucial uh, kind of uh, the uh, problems of uh, dispute between the China and other countries. Uh, so in a sense, it is a double standard. But at the same time, I think it's a, a gap of uh, perception. So in case of uh, ODA, uh, uh, ODA has been managed uh, very carefully not to avoid uh, the overlanding to countries or to take advantage of a lower interest rate to get uh, more uh, kind of contracts. Uh, OECD guideline for ODA loan and OECD, OECD export credit guideline and also OECD DAC uh, development assistant committees uh, guidelines are uh, telling that the ODA loan should be untied, for instance, and it can be either very low interest rate or uh, it can be as a commercial rate to avoid uh, unfair competition. It is very detailed uh, kind of uh, regulations uh, 
and uh, Japan has been always uh, part of it, and uh, uh, Korea became OECD member in late 1990s. So, developed countries <laughs> have observed uh, these kind of ideas, and also, uh, <coughs> I must say, Paris Club played a very important role to take care of uh, debt issues, uh, so debt restructuring, debt uh, uh, relief. Uh, they cannot just discount. Uh, they, are, uh, uh, they cannot g give uh, debt relief uh, easily because it would affect other lenders. They cannot get back uh, the money uh, earlier than others because uh, it would uh, damage others. So there are so many rules related to the lending, for instance. This is one example. But uh, China should uh, start thinking that it is not just a mere developing country. It is a big, huge power in uh, economic er arena and cultural, military, uh, geopolitical, and many respe <coughs> respects. So, <coughs> of course, uh, China is still uh, poor in many respects. They must pay more attention. <coughs> uh, some senior officials uh, said to me once that, uh, by the way, I visit uh, China at least twice a year, and I meet uh, senior people, developed people, three times or four times a year. So that's why uh, I, 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 I try to <laughs> make uh, my comments based on those uh, conversations as well as uh, reading papers. But uh, uh, so once uh, <coughs> uh, they said, uh, when I say that China should uh, uh, change uh, their perception to regard itself as uh, just a developing countries, he said, uh, they said that uh, you are just looking at the Beijing or Shanghai and so on. There are so many poor regions. And I was invited to go those places. It's a very poor without electricity. Electricity is on, only one bulb, bulb, and no water, no sanitation, no gas, and so on. But uh, those villages also try to have an apartment with electricity, drink, drinking waters, and cooking gas, and so on. But some people want to stay in rural areas and just cultivate a very small lot of uh, land. They are so poor, and they cannot get married because of poverty. I saw th those places. But at the same time, China is a country with a huge uh, uh, wealth and uh, foreign exchange reserve, and uh, a very large number of uh, billionaires or uh, millionaires who are worried about how to use uh, their monies, whether a chateau in France or uh, uh, the uh, 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 yacht uh, uh, or a private jet or how to use money in Japan, for instance. There are so many people like that. So what I want to uh, say to China is that they should pay more attention to equality of the people. Because they are socialist countries, they don't uh, think uh, uh, income distributions and wealth distribution is a part of uh, their work necessarily, because it is meant to be equal from the beginning. And uh, property is owned by the public uh, or by, by a state. But in reality, it's a kind of system, a market system, without uh, the a kind of uh, uh, the remedy, uh, like in a <coughs> social democratic system or a mixed economy type ideas in uh, developed countries or capitalistic countries. So. I think that is one of the issues that China should uh, squarely look at. But because of vested interest in urban populations, uh, there is a still clear uh, <laughs> distinction between the registration 
in rural areas and uh, registrations in urban areas. They are trying to change it. They are trying to uh, adopt the universal system. They are now building a pension system, but the gap divide between urban and rural is so wide. <coughs> so that is one of the issues. Uh, finally, very quickly about ASEAN. <laughs> Again, ASEAN is such an important system and uh, uh, many uh, leaders uh, uh, often meet and ministers often meet. There are countries like uh, uh, Indonesia or Thailand or uh, a little bit more developed. There are countries like Myanmar or uh, Cambodia and uh, Laos. And uh, the political systems are not uh, going, uh, moving uh, progressively all the time. There are uh, uh, mandarin. But still, ASEAN uh, is uh, more successful than other regions because of uh, the uh, collective actions to move uh, forward to more market-oriented reform and uh, more liberal attitude toward many things. And I don't think it will dramatically change. Uh, because of ASEAN, although ASEAN is not like EU, they are not formalized uh, uh, kind of uh, the open uh, system. It's not the customs union as uh, uh, Europe and uh, they are not uh, <laughs> trying to have a single currency, but because of uh, influence each other, they are moving toward uh, better uh, directions, and uh, th they can uh, play as a kind of platform to to have a, such a uh, system like APEC or uh, 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 East, East, Asia East Asian Summit and. Uh, ASEAN plus six or ASEAN plus three or ASEAN plus six plus Russia and the United States. Without ASEAN, uh, there is no such uh, framework. So uh, ASEAN plays a more important role today than before. And uh, we shouldn't just look at the chi China as an emerging power. Of course, China is emerging power. But we should also look at ASEAN as a very important partner uh, uh, economically, but also uh, in a uh, diplomatic uh, arena. So uh, by that, uh, I, 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 I would keep uh, more Excellent. time for <laughs> Excellent. No, thank you. And, and uh, your points about uh, well, the all of the countries that you mentioned are, are um, very well taken and, and uh, excellent points. And I think the one about China and perceptions of itself and what our perceptions of China are, that is at the heart, I think, of a lot of the um, certainly the U.S.-China trade issues. I think there's a lot, a lot of that that um, lies behind uh, that problem. Um, your, your ending with ASEAN leads nicely into the sort of the overall um, theme of this conference about Asian architecture, because mm -hmm. as you said, ASEAN is at the heart of a lot of the economic integration efforts and the connectivity efforts around the region. So I wanted to ask you about that first, because the ADB is one of its, part of its mission is to promote greater integration and connectivity around the region. So how do you see that broader question of, of integration? And in particular, uh, if I can ask you to sort of combine a couple of questions I was going to ask you, and we can delve into them more specifically, but how does infrastructure, and particularly quality infrastructure, play a role in this um, story of uh, Asian economic integration and connectivity? Um, and uh, the other question is more, uh, you, ADB has committed to a lot of um, what I would guess are called corridors of development, uh, like CAREC, the Central Asian um, Corridor, um, and the, um, uh, I think you call it the Greater Mekong uh, Subregion, GMS. 
uh, here it's called the Lower Mekong, I guess, but uh, um, th these, these initiatives, to, to, how do they, uh, how do they, what is their connection to the broader story of, of regional connectivity in the region and, and how does the ADB um, see those as important parts of that story? So there's a lot in there, but I'm interested more broadly in your perspective of uh, connectivity in the region. I think uh, connectivity or the uh, trade or exchange of uh, ideas and peoples uh, has been the essence of uh, the uh, success of uh, Asian regions and more widely global economy after the World War II. And of course, there were so many uh, tragic or difficult uh, things like uh, Vietnam War or Cambodia conflict of uh, uh, Pol Pot and others. But overall, uh, there has been a progress in uh, the connectivity or trade or uh, open foreign direct investment system and the regional cooperation. And uh, uh, as you said, the ADB was established in 1966, and there were already IADB, Inter-American Development Bank, and African Development Bank. So it's not totally uh, innovative new idea, but uh, the Asian countries really wanted to have a uh, one system which is uh, representing uh, Asia as a unity. And uh, uh, according to uh, ADB Charter, the Asia is uh, from Iran to, to the uh, China or Japan, and not including uh, uh, Middle East, uh, like Iraq or uh, the uh, Kuwait, and those countries out of uh, Asian boundary in ADB Charter. So it is based on the uh, 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 a cafe, uh, today's SCAP uh, cut, uh, definition, uh, uh, SCAP is a UN agency in Thailand which uh, supports these Asian countries. But anyway, uh, regional cooperation through uh, ADB uh, was uh, very important to promote the idea of uh, connectivity and uh, trade uh, system. And also ASEAN was created in 1967 or so. And, uh, it has played an important role, but it was first uh, set up as a kind of uh, the uh, uh, resistance uh, place for the communist in intrusions to uh, uh, Southeast Asian countries. So of course, uh, China was not part of it, or Vietnam was not part of it. In a sense, it was against the uh, communist influence uh, uh, from Vietnam and China, but uh, uh, it became uh, uh, the uh, integrating uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and uh, Myanmar in 1990s, and uh, uh, it became a truly uh, whole uh, Southeast Asian countries uh, uh, framework. And as I said, uh, I would say that if uh, there were no such, there had been no such a system like uh, ASEAN, Vietnam uh, and uh, other three countries, uh, Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia, transition to market system couldn't have been as good as this, uh, this one. And I think it was because of influence from Singapore, Philippines, and others, which uh, had a more successful experiences uh, based on the market system. And also to add a more democratic system, more or less. So it is so important, and the ADB uh, was also very important. <laughs> of course, uh, I would say that. Uh, but uh, ADB, uh, China became uh, ADB member in 1986, and uh, Taipei, China was, uh, Taiwan was always uh, ADB's member since uh, 1966 uh, from its foundation. But uh, the uh, then pre President Fujioka could keep uh, Taipei, China as a separate economy, 
and uh, it is now the uh, Korea, uh, uh, and uh, Korea's uh, 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 executive director's office, constituency, and it's a separate economy as a member. So in a sense, uh, including uh, Taipei China and Hong Kong China, uh, we, uh, ADB could uh, successfully include uh, China to the ADB system. And, and uh, ADB started lending to India in 1986 also. And uh, until then, uh, it was uh, the area of uh, IDA or World Bank to lend uh, to India. So ADB is also a, a symbolic place of uh, uh, communications, uh, cooperations of Asia. So I still believe uh, ADB can play a very important role as a kind of uh, institution to cement uh, friendship and cooperation. Uh, uh, we have uh, 12 uh, executive directors and uh, one uh, America and one Jap Japan, but six uh, 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 Asian developing countries, including China, Korea, Indonesia, and uh, uh, India, and uh, uh, Pakistan, and uh, uh, Malaysia. So, uh, uh, even if uh, there is a conflict between Pakistan and India, conflict between, uh, between countries. They, they are discussing uh, very frankly about the development of Asia at the ADB. And uh, I, as I, I said, I often visit China to have a very frank discussion. And it is because we are still lending to China to in, uh, climate change actions and also environment and so on. So uh, I believe uh, the re regional cooperation is very important. And we are promoting, as you said, uh, Central Asian Regional Economic Cooperation, uh, CAREC. Uh, and uh, when the uh, uh, Soviet system was collapsed, uh, collapsed in 1990s, uh, there was no connectivity between republics because uh, there was a centrally controlled system of the Soviet. And it connected people. It connected the republics. But there were no natural connectivity. So that's why uh, ADB started uh, uh, this CARAC initiative in 1990s. And also, Greater Mekong subregion is the same. Uh, after the collapse of the uh, <coughs> Soviet system, the uh, uh, support from Soviet was cut off. And Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar then, we uh, started the uh, GMS initiative with the, uh, these countries. And also, uh, Yunnan of China. Mm -hmm. But today, uh, China's influence in these countries is very large. And uh, at that moment, China was uh, just uh, kind of uh, the, 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 uh, like observer. But today, it is, uh, in a sense, uh, more like a big brother in these systems. So some countries feel that uh, China's influence is becoming too big. And the character is the same. Uh, China's influence in these Central Asian countries are becoming very large. So how to make uh, uh, China as a kind of very constructive, uh, moderate, uh, uh, seasoned member in this? Uh, um, maybe I'm going to frame it in a, in a way that you don't expect. But um, so my father used to work at the World Bank, and he was in charge of Asia in the late 1960s when the ADB was founded. And he told me later, of course, I was too young to understand these things <laughs> then, but, um, but he told me later that the, uh, 
2015, mm. China proposed a new bank, mm. uh, which started in 2016, mm. the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Mm. And similarly, the United States wasn't happy about it mm. um, and said, there's already an Asian Development mm. Bank and a World Bank, so why do we need another, um, another bank in the region? Um, I think that maybe, this is maybe an editorial opinion, but the jury is still out and it's undetermined whether mm. this bank is going to add or subtract or be neutral mm. in its mm. impact on Asian development. But, um, but, but I'm raising this to ask you a question about how did the ADB establish itself um, as a credible uh, institution contributing to Asian development in a way that got the United States to believe that it was an important part of the architecture and based on that, you know, what sort of advice would you give to the Chinese in, mm -hmm. in leading the AIB and how to make that institution credible and established as a, as a constructive uh, part of the scene, if that question makes sense to you? Yeah, it really makes sense. And uh, uh, we wrote the uh, ADB history book, uh, 50 years history book about two years ago. And uh, uh, I was uh, very deeply involved uh, in that uh, work. And uh, there are so many lessons I can learn from it. Uh, and one is uh, the U.S. attitude. And the U.S. was against the idea of uh, ADB. As you said, uh, the World Bank is already there. Why do we need to have another one? But uh, uh, already there was an uh, Inter-American Development Bank, which uh, the U.S., uh, in a sense, uh, uh, supported. And, uh, but uh, the ADB was not just a Japanese initiative. That is a really important point. Uh, Indian economists, uh, Sri, Lanka, uh, uh, Sri Lanka Bank, uh, Thai economists, and so on, they really wanted to have uh, some institution. And there were discussions whether it should be like uh, the World Bank or Development Bank, or uh, the like OECD type uh, uh, advisory uh, board, or whether it should be private uh, kind of a trading, uh, trade uh, finance, uh, private sector uh, company, more or less. But uh, in the end, it became uh, uh, the idea of uh, having uh, something like uh, IADB or uh, World Bank. But it was not uh, just a, a Japanese initiative. A Japanese position at that mo moment was still weak and very, uh, in a sense, uh, the sensitive because uh, Japan made a lot of uh, suffering to Asian countries because of the war. And uh, that uh, memory was not still t uh, totally disappeared. Uh, there was a very strong anti-Japanese feeling uh, among uh, Philippines and other countries. O of course, it depends on countries. Uh, so Japan was uh, more modest, but uh, still uh, uh, the country, uh, Japan, wanted to lead uh, this uh, initiative. And uh, Japan was already recovered uh, from uh, uh, devastation and starting uh, developing very fast. Although until late 1960s, Japan also uh, uh, incurred uh, current account uh, deficit, uh, so it was not surplus countries. But anyway, uh, uh, Japanese uh, thinkers thought it was important to mobilize uh, capital resources uh, by issuing bond in the U.S. and uh, Europe to invest in uh, development of Asia, especially infrastructure. So after uh, it was established in 1966, uh, they really wanted to have uh, uh, the uh, sound banking, and also they scrutinized the project whether it makes uh, economic sense or not. So one of our great lessons I learned from it is a research uh, department, which is uh, now issuing uh, Outlook and so on, was started as a, a department to uh, analyze economic uh, 
return of uh, when the financial return and the economic return of the projects, whether it makes sense to. Otherwise, it would become a white elephant. Politically, it is uh, motivated. So. Uh, the uh, leaders of ADB were so careful to uh, uh, lend to countries whether it makes sense or not. So I think it was a really great idea. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, and in 1969, uh, uh, the ADB was successfully uh, issued a bond in Mark uh, in, in Germany. It was the first uh, bond issued by ADB and it was uh, uh, then ADB uh, issued a bond in Japan, yen denominated uh, samurai bond, but it was the first samurai bond uh, issued in, in Japan. So uh, the uh, president Watanabe had to visit the security exchange of Japan and Ministry of Finance and BOJ, Bank of Japan, to get uh, the support. And also then in 1971, the ADB could successfully, successfully issue a bond in New York market. But uh, because uh, security, uh, 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 consumer protection, investor protection for securities uh, is uh, the state uh, authority, in addition to SEC, uh, he had to visit uh, uh, some states, uh, several uh, states to get the support of uh, state uh, regulators. So uh, that was a kind of beginning of ADB. And what I really want to stress is uh, they were so careful to lend to countries to avoid uh, the uh, problem of uh, uh, the uh, over-lending or uh, debt issues and also economic ground of a project. And also, uh, 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 Japan, in a sense, tried to avoid the uh, impression that this was a leading, uh, this was led by the Japanese initiative. And uh, there was a vote to f uh, decide uh, the headquarters, and Japan lost. So out of 18 <laughs> votes by uh, Asian countries, uh, the other countries say the Asian countries should decide whether, where, where to go. And in the first round, uh, uh, Japan took eight, and uh, Tehran took uh, four, and Manila took three. But uh, in the third round, <laughs> Tehran was out uh, in the second round. And in the end, uh, Japan still kept at eight, and Manila took nine. So, uh, in a sense, it shows the defeat of Japan, but it, it in a sense, shows uh, how Japan was, uh, in a sense, uh, respecting others' uh, kind of ideas. And I think uh, Manila was a good choice uh, because it is more closer to the center of Asia. By the way, Tehran, Iran, decided not to join the uh, bank because uh, it couldn't get the presidency and it couldn't get the headquarters. So uh, uh, to, to AIB, I would say it is more like a Chinese uh, unilateral uh, initiative. And, uh, uh, so, and also they, yeah, but at the same time, because uh, now they have a membership of other countries like Europe and uh, Australia, Canada, and so on, uh, uh, they are more international systems. So they don't uh, lend too much, uh, they are observing uh, international standards. So in that regard, it's okay. And uh, we are co-financing with them for already uh, eight projects, including uh, uh, one expected uh, uh, from AIB approval this uh, December, but including them, uh, we already co-financed eight. So we are cooperating very well. Are these projects that you already, ADB was already um, 
uh, surveying or, or considering and AIB kind of joined them or are there new projects that you've gone out to find together? Generally speaking, we are preparing the projects and they join. Mm -hmm. So because uh, we have about 3,500 uh, staff, we have about 30 uh, uh, resident missions in countries. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, uh, I mean resources to prepare the project and implement it. But uh, AIB has at about 220 or 250. I think it is now growing. Right. But the staff resource is very limited. So they want to function more as an international intermediary. But we are, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, inventing, we are building up uh, pipelines for Therefore. projects. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, there's a lot more to talk about on that. We've done a lot of um, in looking at the AIB and um, uh, interested in more discussion of that, but we won't have time unless somebody asks a question. Okay, I want to bring the audience in in a second, but let me ask you one more, slightly more personal question. But So you've been at the a a ADB for um, almost seven years. Uh, over that time, what are you... What are you most proud of? I mean, what accomplishment do you think was most significant um, that, that you've seen during your tenure or that you've helped to, uh, to make happen? And, and the flip side of that is what's been the biggest frustration or the biggest challenge um, in being uh, the head of this institution? Yeah, I, I'm very proud of uh, these institutions. As I said, uh, it has played a very important role of, to promote cooperation, friendship among Asian countries, uh, regional cooperation since 1966. And uh, it has uh, been uh, led by many good leaders, including uh, uh, vice president of, from other countries and also executive directors. What I'm proud uh, of about my achievement is a merger of uh, Either uh, uh, type uh, the concession loans, uh, concession window, which is uh, for concession loans and <coughs> grant support, but we merged uh, the capital of about thirty billion dollars, thirty-five billion dollars of uh, concession loan windows equity, with a uh, fifteen billion dollars of uh, non-concession window equity, which is uh, like IBRD, uh, IB, uh, IBR, uh, IBRD. Mm -hmm. So, so by the ordinary my, capital resources with the Asian Development Fund, that right. merger gave you a, a stronger Big, uh, capital uh, yeah, that's right. base to be that's able right. to borrow on land. Yeah, uh -huh. So that's right, uh, exactly. And $50 billion of equity versus uh, loans of about $100 billion today. So we have an uh, equity to loan ratio of about 50%. So even if we are targeting 32 or 33% of equity to loan ratio to keep AAA, we are still uh, uh, able to increase our lending without asking a capital increase. So it could uh, be possible because uh, unlike IDA, which is a different legal entity, ADF is a trust fund which is uh, not separate entity. So uh, we uh, interpreted uh, our charter uh, to, uh, uh, that uh, they allow us to do this and uh, it was win-win-win because uh, uh, the to just to keep lending, concession lending, we need a larger equity because we didn't use a leverage at all to lend to Vietnam more, Pakistan more. We need more money from donors to get outstanding loan bigger. But we don't need to do uh, worry about it because through equity we can 
leverage by issuing bond, and we can lend still at the lower rate because there is uh, countries which we charge higher. And also equity itself is uh, cost-free because we don't uh, need to provide a dividend to shareholders. So it was good for donors because they, they don't need to worry too much about the uh, replenishment of this ADF as much as before. ADF is still grant operation, so we still need to get some money every four years for grant operation, but not for concession lending. And it is a win, win for, <coughs> for uh, borrowers of uh, ordinary capital uh, resources because uh, because of equity, large equity, there is more lending capacity. The same to concession borrowing countries because uh, we have a more capacity to lend. For grant uh, uh, recipient countries, uh, this ADF is only for that purpose. Do we have a more income to transfer to this uh, remaining ADF, which is a uh, grant operation? So, in a sense, it is win, 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 and. Uh, uh, I thought uh, this could uh, be done because uh, grant is, uh, money is there and we should use it more efficiently and, and we could, could get support of uh, the uh, countries and uh, all countries decided uh, they didn't need to go back to the parliament or legislative. If they start doing that, it is a mess. Mm. So uh, it was uh, done without going to legislative uh, again. And I, I, I also, uh, uh, try to uh, raise uh, the importance of sector group and thematic groups because uh, our system is more region based uh, like East Asia, Southeast Asia, Central and uh, uh, <coughs> Western Asian countries. Uh, so the World Bank uh, in a sense went to the global practice. It is more uh, kind of horizontal uh, sector based uh, approach. We were also considering what is the best approach there were some re, uh, structural reforms before, and now we have a five region uh, department, and one private sector department. Without uh, changing it, uh, uh, I uh, uh, established uh, seven sector groups and eight thematic groups like agenda and climate change. So by doing that, we try to build up more expertise and learn from other uh, I mean, think tanks and World Bank and other more exchange of views in those areas. I don't know whether it is total success or not, but I think at least uh, we are trying to make a bank more based on knowledge and expertise. And another areas I touched upon is uh, some uh, streamlining of uh, cost structures uh, like uh, uh, introducing a uh, uh, defined uh, contribution system in pension for new hires because uh, defined uh, benefit is uh, so costly and there is a huge unfunded liability. So, of course, uh, there is uh, some resistance from staff, but I think uh, we need to uh, think seriously that our bank is established by the support of taxpayers. Not all sub uh, taxpayers are rich and uh, not all shareholders are rich, so we should use uh, taxpayers' money over shareholders more carefully. Okay. So those are things uh, I, 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 I pay more attention to. And I, we published a 50 years book, and yes. I spent a lot of time to that. What are the remaining challenges? Of course, there are many challenges, like uh, infrastructures, uh, the uh, renewable, and climate change is uh, one of the very important issues. Gender issues for fairness of the society, for the uh, more growth uh, impetus of uh, Asian countries, we need to promote uh, the women's equality, equal uh, 
status in the societies and economic uh, activities. So we support uh, the women's education, uh, health conditions, and so on. So those are remaining issues. But the challenge is, again, uh, how to support China. And my belief is that uh, we can still continue to lend to China, even if it is a limited amount compared to the needs of uh, China. Uh, it's uh, nice to continue to engage uh, China for positive direction, mm -hmm. but there is a, a negative uh, a kind of uh, opposition to such idea. So uh, overall, uh, uh, how to uh, engage China, how to uh, make uh, Asia uh, stable and uh, uh, cooperative uh, areas as it has been is uh, overall one of the biggest challenges to Asia and also to ADB. Well, that's, uh, that's a good note to end on because um, the, uh, a lot of people in Washington are also struggling with that same challenge of how to uh, manage uh, the reality of a, of a, of a, a bigger and stronger and um, more engaged uh, China and the region while maintaining you know, peace and prosperity there. And so we're all struggling with the same set of issues and that's what this conference in a way was about by looking at um, APEC and East Asia summits and other architectural questions. Okay, let me uh, ask for questions. Boo, a couple of hands already. If you have a question, there is a microphone. I'm going to sweep from left to right. So the woman there, and then this gentleman, and then the gentleman in the back. Maybe we'll take the three together for efficiency. Yeah, good uh, afternoon. I'm Suchita. Uh, I'm from Cambodia. I'm uh, in DC for my Fulbright Scholarship on Trade. So I had two questions in mind. So one is about uh, digital trade and I'm talking about, uh, I would like to ask um, how um, ADB play uh, their role to promote uh, digital trade or digital economy. Digital trade. Yeah, okay. digital you trade or it. digital economy and ensure by ensuring the fairness and um, among the uh, member in Southeast Asia because you already touched on the uh, situation in Cambodia, Myanmar, or uh, Laos, or Thailand. So what, what, what are your uh, ADB role to make sure the fairness among these uh, uh, countries when okay. we talk about digital economy okay. or digital trade? And okay. my second question, because you're also talking about uh, gender and women economic empowerment, so what are the, uh, the role of ADB uh, uh, in relation to uh, women economic empowerment? Because recently there are many organizations, including um, World Bank or IMS or World Economic Forum, they also have some gender uh, component to to make sure that uh, women can contribute more or can benefit more from the uh, ongoing uh, uh, trade negotiation or trade uh, discussion. Yeah, thank okay, you. Okay, thank you, I got it. I'll, I'll, let me co collect the other, uh, surpass the uh, microphone. I'll keep a track of this so I can ask you again. Thank you, Nokoma, Mr. Nokoma. Uh, I'm, my background is civil engineering and I did quite a lot of projects in the world, actually, including Russia. Always we do, benefits cost analysis. This is the main thing is to go to the Chinese, they go all over the world actually. This is not even private bank, this is people's bank, but they don't care. Now we have a private bank, which is investing. So my question now is over here to you. How do you control any spending, any obligations, any auditing, when the Chinese is building in China, all complexes, apartments, nobody lives in it. This was a very good program in television. 
So how are you going to control your spending? What my background, we have to check every penny. Where do they go the money? What do you do? Got it, okay. And then a gentleman back there, and then we'll, we'll, I'll repeat the question, so. Go ahead. Thanks uh, for your kind remarks um, today, uh, Mr. Nickel. So my, my question is- uh, hey, Who are, can you identify yourself? Uh, yes, uh, Shane Cooper, I'm a grad student at National Intelligence University. Um, so uh, in 2017, when you were, you gave an interview talking about the, um, the challenges facing uh, ADB following the 50th anniversary, and, and you mentioned the, uh, the relationship between ADB and AIIB, um, and how that the relationship was okay, but that there was still room for development. Um, where do you see, from, from when, when you gave that interview in 2017 to now, how do you see the, the progression of the relationship between ADB and AIIB, and what's the potential for the, the two banks, um, you mentioned the eight projects, what, what's the potential for the ADB and AIIB to help shape the, uh, the future um, economic progress within uh, Southeast Asia? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question about digital trade, the ADB's role in that and, and in promoting you know, fair outcomes in, in Southeast Asia. A second question about gender and the role of ADB. Third question about sort of Chinese overcapacity and um, overspending and how you control that. I mean, what, you know, how or how maybe not just the ADB, but you know, in general, how to deal with that question of overcapacity. Um, and, um, and then the ADB AIB relationship, how you see that um, evolving, especially in okay. Southeast Asia. So, first question is about uh, the digital trade. Uh, uh, trade is not uh, <coughs> the area ADB has a lot of influence. It's a WTO uh, others, but uh, about uh, digital uh, transformation of uh, countries, we are trying to support countries uh, using digital, digital technologies in fintech or financial inclusion, uh, using cloud uh, system to support uh, the uh, uh, smaller banks and also uh, the uh, digital banks for the remote areas. Uh, we need uh, uh, more digital system to support uh, people without uh, the accounts in rural areas or islands. And uh, we are trying to use uh, digital technologies for the uh, uh, agriculture, for instance, uh, to get uh, market uh, information right away, and also to use uh, uh, high-tech uh, system like uh, uh, the uh, drip irrigation to spot uh, the uh, water to the root without, uh, uh, without losing uh, the other waters. Uh, we use a satellite image for better irrigations. And also health system, uh, we are trying to use uh, the remote uh, digital uh, technology for uh, supporting, once again, uh, remote uh, uh, service providers. So there are many areas uh, we can use uh, digital technology for development. And uh, in a sense, uh, uh, the gap uh, divide of uh, digital is uh, uh, becoming wider because of difference in technology. But at the same time, uh, because of uh, technologies, uh, the divide is now narrower. Uh, in, in case of a telephone, for instance, uh, because of uh, smartphones and others. Uh, they can use those things for what I said about health and education and uh, agriculture and so on. So if uh, we can use uh, digital technology better, it, in a sense, it uh, 
support the leapfrog uh, development of countries. And uh, uh, the Imam uh, now has a large uh, uh, sub subscriptions of uh, smartphones. So it helps uh, the Myanmar develop faster than the other countries in the past. About gender, there are many approaches to gender, but in case of ADB, we are supporting uh, women's uh, technical and vocational education training. Uh, I visited uh, the Surabaya is in Indonesia's second biggest cities, and there is a technical school. And I visited there, and many young uh, women studied how to build the ships. Those are the areas uh, which were traditionally a men's work, but uh, we are trying to promote women's involvement uh, in these uh, areas, like uh, shipbuilding. Uh, in Laos, uh, we supported uh, the same kind of ideas. Mm. And I uh, saw so many people try to be women, want to be uh, engineers for the auto, auto, automobiles, uh, no, no, uh, 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 bikes, uh, auto bikes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and also health, uh, we are supporting women's health. In Mongolia, we are uh, building uh, women's uh, uh, clinics and uh, uh, education for those areas. Uh, and uh, so financial inclusion is another important area. So we provide uh, SME finance to focus on women's in many countries, we have a certain uh, proportion uh, uh, obligatory for SME to lend to women's, uh, 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 women's entrepreneurs. And also uh, in uh, building uh, infrastructure, uh, urban uh, infrastructure like uh, trains and uh, the other uh, facilities, we ask uh, 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 the element of uh, women's uh, promotions, like uh, facilities, a uh, toilet, for instance, and uh, in, even in the uh, transmission line project, uh, we uh, include the element uh, to train women's engineers by giving a scholarship. So, in many ways, we are trying to promote women's uh, participations. About uh, the uh, overcapacity of China. Because of state guidance, uh, sometimes uh, to promote uh, the uh, domestic demand, uh, when there is a shock from outside, uh, like a global financial crisis, now uh, US-China uh, trade uh, dispute, uh, they are trying to boost the uh, economy by investing more, and it would cause uh, the kind of overinvestment. I think uh, in uh, production sector, like uh, uh, factories and so on, and uh, in uh, 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 residential investment, uh, like apartment, and in public works, there are many, uh, there are many, in many areas, uh, there is overinvestment, and I think it would cause uh, trouble. And also, they are now studying overinvesting in abroad by Burton Road Initiative. As I said, uh, ADU was very careful, and AIB is also careful to lend to a project uh, so that uh, the project is uh, economically viable. But in case of a Brighton Road Initiative, uh, China Development Bank and Exim Bank lend too much. And other uh, SOEs, uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, lend too much to countries without seriously thinking whether there is a repaying capacity or not, or whether some projects are uh, economically viable. Uh, so do, do you think they're getting better at that? There's a, you know, the Chinese have 
heard a lot of criticism about these issues and others in the Belt and Road and in the forum in April in Beijing, Xi Jinping said that you know, they're going to take note of those things and change the approach a little bit to Belt and Road. I Have think you seen uh, there, there, is a, there is at least uh, they are starting uh, realizing it, uh, to be sure. And uh, so in the past, uh, by the uh, kind of encouragement of uh, Xi Jinping, they started uh, lending and investing a lot in abroad uh, without thinking about repaying capacities and so on. But uh, today, because of uh, such a criticism, and also uh, China was a part of a G20 uh, quality infrastructure principles, and uh, there is a, uh, there are those principles include uh, the environmental and social protections, and also the lifetime cost and life cycle cost and debt sustainabilities, and uh, the uh, fair procurement system, and so on. So. China is a part of it, and when I meet uh, the senior officials of uh, uh, China, I, I would say this is not uh, like a debt trap, uh, as often uh, mentioned, but I think it is unorganized, un uh, without serious consideration, they lent too much, massively. And now they realize that they need a system to control it. They even don't have a data about what companies lend to what uh, countries. So yes. they start, <laughs> yes. So they start realizing that, uh, and also usually when there is uh, the project are not good enough, uh, the, the the borrowers suffer, but lenders also suffer. Mm. So I think they are starting realizing it. But uh, under this state uh, more guided system. Uh, Overinvestment uh, and overcapacity is uh, more serious than the market system, and uh, in a sense, uh, we should uh, look at uh, these things uh, as a, a collective action of the international mm -hmm. community. Um, the AIB question. Yeah, AI, so, so the, you said the relationship was okay. Is it better, worse, about the same? And let me add an additional sort of factor, which is um, you had mentioned earlier that that uh, it was a sort of Chinese initiative. They've been very careful to try to say it's a multilateral initiative and they have all these countries involved and they're taking following international standards but they do seem to be increasingly involved with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative which is by definition a, a unilateral um, initiative uh, is that you know going to potentially affect their standards I mean you know there's now a Belt and Road coordinating mechanism inside the belt the, the AIIB which Sounds like it could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing yeah, in terms yeah. of their practices. AIB, uh, President Jin has been uh, my, uh, my friend over years. And uh, yeah, actually, I didn't know him uh, until 2014 or 13, but uh, we uh, knew each other since then. And uh, since uh, he became a president of uh, AIB, I met him uh, at least uh, 10 times. And uh, we supported uh, the legal system, treasury system, and the uh, safeguard system for environmental and social protection. We gave a lot of knowledge and experiences uh, to AIB to support it. <coughs> because the US and Japan didn't become members, I think, uh, in a sense, it makes sense not to use uh, taxpayers' money for this initiative because we already have uh, ADB and the World Bank and others. So it's okay to, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, cooperate with them through AD ADB, 
That is my idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, because uh, uh, there, there are many members like uh, Australia, Canada, and the European countries, it is uh, more like the international uh, uh, organization. So they are more careful about lending. So their lending is like uh, $3 billion last year as compared to $220 billion to over ADB. So they are more careful, as uh, I said, about uh, the uh, beginning of years of ADB. But uh, 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 and it, it, it is more narrow uh, uh, in, in the areas we are lending to social sector. They are investing only to infrastructure. We are providing policy-based lending uh, to support policy reforms, and uh, we have uh, uh, concession lending. And uh, they they don't have uh, much uh, concession lending. So we are wider coverage. But anyway, uh, our relation is uh, constant. Uh, but because, as you said, the uh, Belton Road Initiative now has a multilateral center for development finance, and uh, BRI also wants to be more international system, uh, and uh, they try hard to do that. But uh, 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 there are no serious supporters for BRI out from outside. It is more or less uh, unilateral action by the China. So AIB is now. Uh, 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 starting providing, it looks like uh, starting providing secretariat work for BRI. And the BRI Center for, cent, uh, 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 Multilateral Center for Development Finance is in the same building with the AIB by chance. So by if, chance? Uh, I, don't I don't know, but uh, because the, the building is large. So, <laughs> and I visited there and I made a lecture uh, this uh, May, and uh, there were so many people coming, about yeah. 200 IAB staff uh, enthusiastically uh, listened to my yeah. lecture. So, we have a very cooperative uh, uh, kind of relation, but uh, Mr. Jin has been saying that the AIB is not a BRI uh, institution. But it looks like uh, it is uh, now closer to BRI because uh, it is asked to play a role of uh, secretariat or staff and uh, also even the treasury, uh, uh, treasury action. Uh, the World Bank uh, under the uh, uh, Jim Kim's presidency was closer to BRI and there was a discussion that uh, the uh, the, uh, uh, the treasury of this uh, multilateral center for global development. By the way, this uh, uh, center uh, in the charter, it, it, or in the uh, 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 understanding uh, MOU, uh, uh, MOU, there is no mentioning of a BRI, but it is clear that this uh, center for global, uh, multilateral center for development finance is for BRI. And uh, uh, there, there was a discussion that the World Bank could play kind of treasury role of managing uh, the surplus money for this uh, center by the World Bank, but uh, they decided not. Mm -hmm. So AIB is now regarded uh, kind of a, uh, can be a secretariat for a Belton Road Initiative or this right. center. Which, global, which raises concerns about whether that's Sorry, right. That's whether, right. Whether the AIB will lift up the BRI or BRI will pull down the mm -hmm. AIB, um, mm -hmm. that's the that's the question people are debating. So I think with that we're mm -hmm. going to have to um, end because we've run a little bit over. I'm sorry if there were other questions, but that's the um, nature of these things. Unfortunately, there's too much to talk about and not enough time. I think um, if you were listening carefully in his diplomatic way of presenting things, Nikau-san said some things that were, as I told you, frank and honest and 
uh, important. And so um, I'd encourage you, we have the video up there in an hour or two, and you can watch this again, and you'll see some subtlety in what he was saying um, that um, was couched in diplomatic terms, but always, uh, always honest and frank and good to hear that, uh, that perspective. Um, so we're delighted to have you here. Uh, wish you good luck this week, because there's a lot of things going on here in Washington uh, this week, and then for the rest of your uh, few months in your term and, and beyond, and we'll remain in touch, and you're always welcome back at CSAS. But please join me in thanking you. Thank you. Thanks so much.